Adult content intended for an adult audience only as this contains explicit words, thoughts, and ideas. The content of this story is purely fiction and not intended for anything but the enjoyment of the listener. If you do not agree with the themes listed in the tags, please do not listen to the story. All characters engaging in sexual relationships or activities are 18 years old or older. This story was found on a free website and brought to audio form here. I did not write and take no credit for this story. Please visit the link in the comments to further support this author. This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. Support us on Patreon to make requests for subjects you would love to hear. Thank you to those who have already reached out. Dungeons and Dicks Part 1 by Publius 68 Dungeons and Dicks Chapter 1 An Unexpected Role to Play I can't believe Mark did that, Tess said, as she rode me idly in our bed. We had both already made each other come shortly after getting home and this was the kind of relaxed love-making that was more about the intimacy and togetherness than about the climax. It was the sort of fuck where maybe we'd come, maybe we wouldn't. Except this time we were definitely both going to come again. That much was quite apparent in how directly we both had wanted to head to bed when we got home. Sex with my wife is always good. But this night had already been an above-average experience. I could tell Tess wanted to scream some more before we fell asleep, and I knew I was eager to make her do so despite our current languid pace to allow for conversation. After five years of marriage, I have to admit that the frequency of our sex had begun to fall off a little. Don't get me wrong, the occasional spontaneous screw on the kitchen table in the middle of making dinner still happened, but we had burned enough sauces over the years that it was no longer exactly frequent. What was, if anything, more frequent and enjoyable these days was the sex we virtually always had the night after our weekly D&D sessions. While I didn't see any real connection between the sex and the gaming, the two had become paired for us in one of those little rituals married couples develop. And honestly, sex was a great way to get the mind right for sleep after four solid hours, give or take, of the frivolity and occasional intensity of committed role-play gaming with a good group of friends. Did what? What are you talking about? I knew exactly what she was talking about, but I found I wanted to make her say it. You know. She glared down at me either increasing nor stopping her easy rise and fall on my cock as she growled. I just smiled back at her, uncomprehending. I mean when he had Renault fuck the shopkeeper's wife to get her to sell him the orb. Tess snapped. What the hell was that? I burst out laughing, unable to keep playing it straight. Tess could not help but laugh with me. I know. I gasped, a little louder than I meant to, in response to the way Tess's insides were clenching along with her giggles. I set up the whole situation so he'd have to do a little caper to steal the damn thing. His character's a fucking thief for fuck's sake. I said. But no, he ups and decides to act like he's got a subclass in gigoloing or whatever. I am the DM for our group. That stands for Dungeon Master, the sort of referee of the game. In RPGs, Dungeon, or Game, Masters sort of set up a skeleton of the story that the rest of the group, the players, will write with their actions. Mark's character in the game is Renault a level 11 thief, who has a wealth of laboriously accumulated skills, tools, and abilities that would have allowed him to steal the object that the party needed. Out of the blue, he had decided to short-circuit the whole scenario and seduce the non-player character of the shop lady. It was my fault, I guess. I'd spent one too many sentences describing her good looks for some entertainment value. As DM, I was essentially playing her role in the story, so I could and should have shut him down from the start, 
making him go through the whole elaborate burglary scenario that I had spent half an hour writing earlier in the week. But I had already drank my first beer and was well into my second a bit earlier in the evening than usual, and I had just let him roll with his shtick. The point of RPG gaming is to see what the players are going to try to pull, after all. Well, it worked, didn't it? You did get the orb. I added, letting my hands idly trace up her belly to cup her soft, swaying boobs. She snorted, then made an approving noise concerning my current actions. I guess. But he fucking described the act. In detail. My wife growled. It wasn't that much detail. I said defending Mark a little. It was like five sentences. It was more than five sentences. Tess replied, simultaneously remembering how scandalized she was and getting a little more serious about our own, current, non-fictional sex. Jerry was sitting right there next to him. Not to mention that Anne and I were listening too. I thought Jerry was going to murder him. I was kind of surprised when she didn't. I allowed. That said, I added musingly. Fifty bucks says the two of them are home right at this very moment, playing an extremely vigorous game of Shopgirl and the Thief. Tess laughed at that, but she didn't disagree with me about it. Let's just say, if Mark is still alive to play again next week, then you have probably won that bet. She said slyly. Well, either way, I'm not complaining. And since your actions speak louder than your words, I'm thinking you aren't either. I said, suddenly grabbing her and rolling us over with me on top. Languid discussions about Mark's lurid imagination were fine and all, but it was time for some lurid activity of our own. The next Saturday, I was packing up all my DM stuff my bag of dice, my big privacy screen that kept nasty players from seeing my maps, notes, and the dice I was rolling, the case of lead miniature figures we used to lay out battles, and my three-ring binder with all the fruits of my creative efforts for the week, all ready to unleash on my wife and friends. Tess was putting aluminum foil over her contribution to dinner for the night, a tray of Caesar salads, each a single bite, nestled in her homemade baked Parmesan cheese cups. We headed out the door to the garage for the short drive over to Mark and Jerry's, who were hosting that week. As we got in the car, Tess asked, Well, we have not been questioned by the police about Jerry's actions and whereabouts, so I'm guessing Mark has survived. I hope you are going to head off any more of that shit. I'd hate to see him die anyway after such a narrow escape. I don't know, I said slyly. There was this woman who witnessed his act with me, that later not only fucked me like a wildcat, but she blew me, twice. Tess smiled in self-satisfied fashion. Given that incredible aftermath, I thought, rather than shut him down, I might maybe goad him a little. She laughed out loud at that, then stopped and looked at me in semi-genuine horror. Wait, are you serious? Maybe. I smirked, making the turn just past the Walmart. What have you got planned this time? Tess demanded that I just smiled, and she hit me. Not terribly hard, though. Mark and Jerry's house is a bit nicer than ours, to be honest. Mark inherited his father's martial arts dojo tragically early, and he makes good money there mostly teaching little kids about flexibility, self-discipline, and a tiny amount of actual martial arts at least when he isn't still training himself for occasional competitions. But the real source of their money is Jerry. She is a natural salesperson, and absolutely cleans up in the life insurance business. She represents a great firm, and I wish we had anyone in my company's sales department who had as much talent and commitment in every phase of the customer relationship as she has. And to be frank, I am sure that her mop of strawberry blonde hair, cute nose, and her slender figure that cuts a killer look in a business suit do not hurt her ability to get in the door. And no danger of her wearing a business suit for D&D though. 
she and Mark both were sporting identical black athletic shorts. Mark had on a Marvel Shang-Chi t-shirt, and Jerry wore a white tee with Mark's dojo's logo on it. I suspected that Jerry was not wearing a bra under that thin cotton. Yes, I know. Jerry is my friend. She is married to my friend. I am married to a woman with, so far as I could tell, even better, and indisputably bigger, tits than Jerry. I'm sorry, but guys notice these things. Sue me. Craig and Anne were knocking on the door before we could even get my stuff put down or Tess's salads onto the table. Mark, Jerry, Tess, and I were all nearly exactly the same age, 31. Our birthdays are even all in the same month. Craig and Anne are both a bit older, in their mid-thirties. Craig is even taller than my six feet and an inch, and Anne is damn near statuesque, way taller than the other two women. She even towers over Mark. Craig had his usual golf shirt on fitted tight to show off his broad shoulders and thick upper arms. And, whose wardrobe choices are always interesting, had on loose cargo shorts and a Grover the Monster from Sesame Street t-shirt. She had roughly cut away the neck, leaving a modestly immodest amount of cleavage on display. I cannot pretend that even Tessa's lovely accoutrements are as nice as Enz rack. Honesty compels and all that. My wife had once caught me looking a bit more closely than usual and had, in a fit of uncharacteristic cattiness, informed me that she knew for a fact that Anne's tits were fake. I, in a fit of possibly unwise honesty, had replied that I did not care. Pleasantries were exchanged, food was looked over, and first beers were opened. It was our usual routine every game night. I thought that maybe Mark was catching a little extra side-eye, even from his own wife, as if everybody was wary about him repeating his performance from the prior week. It could also have just been that he was, as host, getting a little extra attention but I was pretty sure it was the new element he'd introduced that was behind the subtle dynamic that I had my own plans. I admit I was jealous that someone other than me had come up with a new thing, and also, I had really enjoyed what had happened when Tess and I got home after last Saturday's events. Drawing some more dirty talk out of the group was absolutely on my agenda. We moved over to the game table and all got ourselves set up. We call it D&D, but we don't actually use the official Dungeons and Dragons brand rule set anymore. We use a commercial alternative that I discovered at New York Comic Con a couple of years back. The combat system seems better, the magic rules are cool, and while the publisher has a pretty lame set of monsters to offer, it is totally simple to convert nasties from the huge existing D&D library to the new system. Our story that night started back in the same town where Mark's shop-wife incident had occurred. Everybody seemed to be wary of him as things unfolded, except Tess, who seemed more wary of me. But I carefully kept things on task even ensuring that Mark's thief, Renault, encountered no female non-player characters to interact with. Furthermore, I moved things along briskly, as I told everybody that I had finally finished a new dungeon and wanted to get them into it. Soon, things were going smoothly, just like normal. Whoever built and stocked this dungeon had a sense of humor. Craig observed drilly. His character, the mighty knight Sertirian, had just been caught in a water trap. The knight had never been in any particular danger but I made sure he looked ridiculously hapless in his powerful armor, splashing around and failing repeatedly to extricate himself. I had placed the lead statue of his character upside down in a glass of water for the whole ten minutes it took for the others to figure out how to get him free, which irked my friend something fierce. Thank you? I grinned. I meant the evil figure of malevolent power in the game who put this together. He snarked at me. You, you are just annoying. Hm. I murmured pretending to look at my prepared notes behind my screen. I rolled some dice idly. Sir Tyrion's armor has developed a squeak due to the long immersion. 
He can be heard an extra twenty yards further away whenever he moves, until he can have it professionally serviced in town. Both Tess and Jerry laughed out loud at Craig, and just patted him on his forearm and said, in her most matronly voice, Now, dear, we mustn't poke dungeon masters, they get cranky. She turned to me, sliding her own lead figure of the mysterious priestess Gala next to Sir Tyrion. Gala prays deeply to her patron deity Ferth for Hunter's stealth to counter his noisy armor. She declared, Roll 3d8s, I said with a sigh, and grabbed three eight-sided dice and rolled an eighteen. Very well, I went on in a formal voice. A soft glow appears for a moment around Sir Tyrion. Ferth has heard your beseechment and temporarily grants Sir Tyrion the stealth of a hunter. He is now only noisy enough to be heard an extra five yards away. I added in my normal voice. Craig took it well. Mark, whose thief was the stealthiest character in the party, looked at N. Renault could use that little blessing every once in a while, he said. She just winked at him. Maybe for the right price, she said in Gala's high ethereal voice. Play went on. I was pleased with this dungeon's design. It was indeed funnier than usual, and everybody was in a good mood. Immediately after a long, drawn-out battle, which was extended due to some haggling over tricks Jerry and Tess wanted to try, I looked at my map and the time. There were still two more set pieces I wanted to get them through that night, and we only had about an hour left before our usual quitting time. There remained a short segment of dungeon between the adventurers and the first of those major locations, the one that was designed to satisfy me need to some dirty talk. I was going to get in trouble with my wife about this one. I hoped. I casually scratched out the intervening rooms. I could recycle them later somewhere else. Time for the big scene. I smiled to myself. This was going to be fun. If I got away with it. I had needed a seriously nasty challenge for this next chamber, to account for the value of the treasure I was placing there. I settled for a dragon. I was playing things for laughs, so it was a colicky baby dragon, complete with diaper and a bib. Also, it had to be a baby because everybody's characters were all only levels 10 through 12. In this game system, they would have presented a full-grown dragon with no threat beyond a possible case of after-dinner heartburn. It was a pretty hilarious battle, with the baby doing as much damage to its nursery room furniture as them. And's priestess still almost got killed, getting mostly cooked by the baby's fiery breath when she failed three different, easy savings throws. Her rising dismay as she rolled low numbers for each in succession was hilarious.i in the end. They were all scuffed up pretty badly by the time they finally put baby to bed permanently. They looked around, seriously expecting some major treasure for such a hard monster, but at first they found nothing. Their whining was starting to get delicious when Craig started going through the wreckage of the giant diaper-changing table. Underneath the shards of broken wood, he found smaller shards from what appeared to be a human-sized wardrobe cabinet, possibly for the dragon's nursemaid. They all shuddered and wanted to get out of there before any human nurse tough enough to change those diapers returned. Craig was undeterred, and kept digging, finally finding one shiny object. What is it? he asked. Sir Tyrion straightens, I said, and holds up a shiny chain mail bikini. Oh, you dish a bag, my wife groaned. Jerry was looking at me irritably. Let me guess, I'm the only one who could wear it. I'm the only female combat specialist. Jerry's character, Frenoria, was a half-elven ranger, a specialist class of fighter that tended to use lighter armor anyway. I grinned at her, then at Mark. Yep, was all I said. I felt Tess kick me under the table, but less hard than I had been bracing for. Throw it away. Jerry ordered Craig, who openly pouted at the thought, which pissed her off more. Are you sure? I asked her slowly. 
It's really, really shiny. She looked at me flatly. Then she looked at the other two wives. Mine rolled her eyes, but surprisingly held her tongue, and winked broadly at her. Craig was still openly pouting that she didn't want to play along. Mark just said in a low voice, You know you want to at least check it out. That was Mark talking to Jerry, not Renaud talking to Frenoria. Fine, she said, tossing her head. She turned back to Craig and held out a hand. All right. This is ridiculous, but I do need some new armor. Mine got beaten up pretty bad by that fucking dragon. She then spoke in the clipped, country accent she affected when speaking as Frenoria the ranger. Let me evaluate it, Sir Tyrion. Ahem. I doubt it would fit your frame. Craig bowed his head, pouting no more, and mimed a toss. You use your professional skill to evaluate the armor. I said, passing her a note. Her eyes opened as she read aloud. You have discovered mithril chain mail armor. This suit of armor is solid, genuine mithril, and is of extraordinary craftsmanship. It provides 25 points of protection against all damage types and due to its lightweight and unencumbering design, inflicts zero movement or endurance penalties to the wearer. A low whistle went around the table. With that on, you're a tougher tank than I am, Craig said speculatively. Maybe, Jerry replied thoughtfully, still looking at the paper. She looked up at me with fresh challenge in her voice. You knew you'd have to make this extra awesome to have even a chance of getting me to wear it. She accused Dot I just shrugged and smiled. That was a nasty monster. Nasty monsters mean serious treasure. Renault mentions that you can't share that, Mark said. Real-life husband or no, Renault was a greedy, grasping, mercenary thief. So you won't get much of a share of anything else we already have found or will find down here, if you keep that trinket. Jerry wrinkled her nose at him, suddenly possessive. Yes. Oh, yes. You could sell it when we get back. It's got to be worth a mint, with all that mithril, Tess observed. Really? I asked her. It's really shiny, exactly. She giggled back at me, rubbing her fingers together like counting money. So shiny it almost glows. I said quietly. Wait, Tess said. In Shinora's haughty, self-important sorceress voice she said to Jerry. Allow me to examine the trinket. It's magic too? Really? griped Tan. You know, I wear armor as well. Maybe Gala will take it, if Frenoria would prefer a share of the regular treasure. Sorry. I said quickly. It wouldn't work with your ceremonial robes. Priestesses have a dress code. I was kicking myself internally, though. I should have thought about Anne's cleric maybe wearing it. But I had this set up for Jerry, thinking that she was most likely to be irritated but simultaneously revved up by Mark's shenanigans the prior week, and I was a little target fixated. And might have been a better target, actually, now that I thought about it. But while Jerry had seemed to be about to disappoint me at first, she looked to be coming around to having some fun with it. Frenoria agreed to let Shanora examine the bikini. I handed another sheet of paper to Tess. I use papers like this for objects whose properties were not obvious except to specific people. That way, players could choose what to reveal about what they knew. They could also lie. Tess decided not to lie. Tess read it once to herself, then read it out loud. Armor of Elemental Protection Eight points of protection, automatic, against all elemental attacks. Where it never gets cold or hot from the weather. Yeah, Jerry said. I'm definitely not selling this thing. She sighed. I guess I'll wear it. That got a wolf whistle from Mark, and a quieter one from Craig. I just grinned in triumph. Frenoria tugs her old, beat-up chain mail off over her head, 
and pulls the bikini on over her padded underlayer. Jerry said, smirking at me. Sorry, I said, ready for this one. But it is magical chainmail, powered by your body's own energies. It won't work unless worn against the skin. Gotta wear it right if you want it to work. I had made sure that it was really good armor. There was no way she could refuse it. I hoped. Oh, for fuck's sake, grumbled Jerry. How is this even supposed to work? A bikini can't protect just about anything. I was confident now that she wasn't really mad, just performing. In a way, she was engaging in a secondary role-play as an indignant, 21st-century woman. The only worry I really had by this point was Mark. I was smiling at Jerry, as was most everyone else, but I was watching Mark out of the corner of my eye. When would he draw the line at my tease-slash-flirt-slash-torture with Jerry? I wanted to back off before he drew that line, if he was going to. Mark was relaxing back casually in his chair next to Jerry, while somehow simultaneously giving the impression of leaning in eagerly. His grin told me that he was enjoying his lovely wife being in the spotlight. Maybe I wasn't going to have to draw any lines beyond whatever Jerry's hard stop ended up being. He spoke casually. Come on, babe. RPGs were written by and for lonely nerds. John isn't lonely. Put in Tess, giving me the very gratifying eye. I leered right back at my wife. It's in the rules. I said, as if defensively, to Jerry. Chain mail bikini armor works just like any other. That is not in the fucking rules, exclaimed Jerry, Tess, and N, in virtual unison. I could have just said, My dungeon, my rules, of course. But I wanted to sell this. It felt like the more legitimate I made this ridiculous plot device, the farther I could push it. And I was increasingly curious how far I could push it. In my mind, earlier in the week, this was supposed to be a five minute, sexy little diversion. Everyone's response so far had me pushing it into a centerpiece of the evening. Look, I said seriously, just the way I had countless times before when the players wanted to argue with me about some point of logic or rules. It's in the notes on guiding player character creation in the Game Master's Guide. I knew none of them had read that volume. I hope none of them had, at least. It says it is important to allow great latitude in creative costume design. Armor and equipment should be allowed to be described in whatever manner advances the story without inflicting a performance penalty on the player. They all stared at me for a moment. I half expected to hear a demand to see the passage. Told you it was written by lonely nerds. Laughed Mark. It might as well have instructed that all female characters should just have their boobs hanging out. Snark Tess throwing up her hands. Go ahead, the rulebook says. Put cleavage in a fucking breastplate. No penalty. Her voice warbled sarcastically. Sounds good to me. Laughed Craig. You are the one that told me her sorceress walks around in robes cut open down to her navel. I reminded Tess. I told you that. Tess snapped, but with no heat. I didn't tell them. She added, indicating our friends. We'd all see that display anyway. Chirped Anne. Your characters would. Said Tess smugly. If they had looked. They haven't. Sir Tyrion gives Shinora's robes a careful examination. Craig said instantly. Tess bristled for show, but before she could react further, I snapped. Roll a perception check, plus fifteen for routine conditions. Craig grinned and rolled a fifteen. That's thirty total. I laughed. Critical success. What does a critical success mean when all he's doing is just ogling my... Shinora's boobs? He catches a nip slip? Suggested Mark. You wish. Tess growled. Yes, I do. Muttered Craig. You said that out loud, dear. And Stage whispered, 
Craig blanched a little. He really hadn't meant to be heard. Everyone was getting caught up in this little bout of dirty talk. The stirring in my pants promised some very good sex later, when we got home. The critical success means that Tess needs to do a presentation on how Shinora's costume looks, especially the cleavage. I said. Presentations were a tradition of ours that we sometimes had when a new character, or a new look for an existing character came into play. The player would stand and describe their new look. As DM, I did a ton of mini-presentations for non-player characters and monsters, but never nearly as elaborate as what the players sometimes concocted. I am not going to stand up and describe my tits to Craig. Tess snorted. Shinora's tits. I corrected her pedantically. All right then, I'll do it for you. I declared, and shifted back to my epic narrator voice. Shinora, as always, wears her deceptively simple black robes. The fabric is soft, but thick and protective. Scores of small hidden pockets and pouches are sewn into its folds for the ingredients and tools of her craft. It is belted with thick, white cords three in number, which accentuate her alluringly sleek waist. Tess was staring at me. I may have been adding some new details of my own imagining, and I hope that she liked them. She always wears the robe quite fetchingly open, the lapels running almost parallel and wide apart downward from her enticing neck, until finally sweeping together at her navel. The rich inner curvature of her large, firm, smooth, motherly charms are clearly, all right, Buster, Tess interrupted. I guess I had better do this after all. She slid smoothly to her feet from her chair. I was inflicting some bonus embarrassment. This was going so much better than I had hoped. And was being silly, Craig was letting slip embarrassing utterances, and my wife. Tess seemed prepared to make an ass out of herself. Could I hope that she'd make a sexy ass out of herself? My luck this evening was strong. My wife does not really go in for cleavage in how she dresses, despite being generously equipped for it, but she had chosen that night to wear a stretchy knit wraparound blouse that at least suggested a plunging neckline. She stood and stroked her hands down the crossing lapels of her top, actually tugging them a bit as her hands slid along them. The neckline still revealed no actual skin, only suggesting it. She turned away from me toward the others, especially Craig and Mark. While shooting me a defiant smirk over her shoulder. I and Shinora's arrogant tones, Tess said. My breasts are verily quite sleek, and I do indeed leave their inner slopes and the valley between exposed. But I do this not to expose them to the childish gaze of immature louts, she added sternly, shooting me a stormy look over her shoulder. I do so because it is important to not impede the flow of magical energies to and from the core of my power, which rests between them and my chest. Her hand stroked up and down between her breasts as she said all that, and I could see the guy's eyes following her fingers almost involuntarily. Interestingly, Jerry and Anne were almost equally attentive. I am personally always quite interested when Tess touches her boobs, but I found to my surprise that right then I was more fascinated by the fact that the others were so intently interested, and mostly in the same way as I. Then Tess narrowed her eyes at Mark. But there will be no, what was your crude phrase, you miserable cuppers? Nip slips? she declared. My eldritch powers, in a combination of concealing and mending energies, imbue the robe with the power to remain firmly in place. I can lean back, or all the way forward at the waist. I can lean, or twist to the left, or the right. She went on, performing those exact motions as she spoke. Every eye in the room was on her. I could even shake them back and forth or up and down. Word and action were still gloriously one dot she straightened, and ran a hand down between her boobs once more. And with all that, no prying, impertinent eyes, regardless of any perception checks, 
we'll be seeing so much as a hint of incidental aureole. With that, she sat down. The smug was strong in her. The hardness was strong in my pants. Gaze on that perfection and despair, my dudes. She is mine. We exchanged a look of promise for later. Watching her tease them, especially the guys, was turning out to be a major turn-on, and this wasn't even what I had planned, almost as good as my suddenly ramped-up prospects for later. Jerry was actually irritated that my wife had stolen her spotlight. All right, all right. She grumbled into the momentary silence, demanding everyone's attention once more. She looked at me. You are telling me that Frenoria has to strip down completely to wear this armor? Her voice was pleading, but I wasn't quite sure what she was pleading for. Yep, I said with a shit-eating grin. Everybody leaned in to hear what she had to say. Frenoria is not getting naked in front of the fucking party. Jerry said, sticking her tongue out at her husband. Wait here a moment, and she'll slip off to change. Bullshit, said Anne. Everybody looked at her. You are telling us that your character is going off alone, to get naked, in a fucking dungeon? Jerry paused at that. And this smart-ass dungeon in particular? Tess added. Not only will you definitely die, but in this dungeon, you will die in some ridiculous, corn excuse for a joke that this juvenile thinks is funny. She punched me in the shoulder. We'd find your body naked and spread-eagled inside of one of his damn gelatinous cubes or some shit. And piled on. Things were snowballing now, and it was glorious. With an uneven test piling on, I needed to do nothing to keep ratcheting up the embarrassment for Jerry. Jerry seemed a little nonplussed that the other girls were the ones to make her miserable at the moment. But she had wanted to regain the spotlight. Fine. She snapped. Frenoria will strip down in the very center of the party then. Mark gave a little cheer and she elbowed him briefly before leaning over the table to their miniatures. She moved her little statue to the center and arranged the other four in a square around hers. Then she ostentatiously turned each one to face outward and away from her. No peeking, she said sternly to the others. Sir Tyrion peeks, laughed Craig instantly. He clearly loved this whole thing as much as I did. Jerry glared at him with a smile. But before she could respond, I quickly asked, Who all peaks? Craig of course shot his hand up in the air. Mark's hand went up just as fast. I laughed when his hand went up a heartbeat later. Jerry laughed at her too. Then everyone turned and looked at Tess. Well, thank you, Jerry told her. At least someone has a little honor. She cut herself off up as Tess raised her hand as well, slowly and with an evil grin. I can't have you turning toward me and using that to claim you don't have to describe your character enough to satisfy these perv's prurient interests, said Tess with sweetly vicious innocence. Jerry looked at Tess flatly for a moment, then she stared at me. Then she looked back at Tess and said simply, You asked for it. Everybody roll a stealth check. I declared for the hell of it. Everybody rolled well, except Craig, who failed his check spectacularly. You catch Turin peeking. I smirked. With that, Jerry stood, just like we usually had people do for presentations. She paused, taking a deep, nervous breath that stretched the thin white fabric of her t-shirt tightly over her boobs. Jerry was not the size queen that Tess and Anne were, but she could only be thought of as small-breasted if you compared her to them. I had always felt that Mark had absolutely nothing to complain about. My suspicions about Jerry being braless that evening were clearly sound. Her nipples were so hard at that moment, they tented up the thin cotton half an inch. Better, she must have really dark aureoles, because their outlines were well and truly visible through the stretched fabric. The shirt almost immediately loosened as she breathed out, but she had everyone's full attention now. She sure as hell had mine. 
Fine. She grumbled, still pretending to be put upon. Frenoria shrugs off her cape and bends to unbuckle the straps around her thighs and knees that keep her chain trousers from flopping when she moves. Won't need those anymore, quipped Mark. I wanted him to shut up and stop interrupting his wife's flow. Jerry looked like she was ready to get into this. After she kicks off her boots, she loosens her belt and lets the bottom half of her mail fall to the dungeon floor. She began. The trousers actually come apart in two when you release the tie-downs. I put in. I didn't want to interrupt, but I also wanted to establish that there was no going back to the old armor. The armor was that badly damaged? Jerry asked, in genuine seriousness. It was a nasty baby dragon. I shrugged. I told you before that you heard the armor tear. I kicked the useless old male aside, she said, shrugging. Then she paused, taking a deep breath to get back into her train of thought. I was enthused to see that my interruption had not completely derailed her intent to play along. I was much more enthused as she took another of those deep breaths. She threw her shoulders back as she did so, enhancing the effect. It had to be intentional. As Frenoria shrugs the short-sleeved male shirt off over her head, it is clear that her shoulders are just as strong and well-defined, while still sleek and feminine, as her well-tanned arms. She looks down and tugs for a moment on the thin, soft, white shift that she wears underneath to protect her more delicate parts. Then she unties the neckline and lets the fabric slip off her shoulders and down, down her body to the floor. Per Jerry, really hamming it up by the end of that bit. No one's character was terribly close to their real-life appearance, as was well illustrated here in the contrast between Frenoria's muscular, sculpted form and Jerry's real-life dryad-like slenderness. Her bare waist is not thin, but strong, befitting the coarse strength springing from the hard life of a ranger. Her belly curves inward ever so slightly, its smooth expanse stretched taut over barely perceptible muscles. Jerry actually ran her hands over her various body parts as she spoke. Everybody was leaning forward by now, and you could feel the tension, especially as Jerry stopped talking to further caress herself. Get to the good stuff. And growled lightly. You are killing my husband over here. Mark and I were dying too, of course. And I wasn't sure that the other ladies weren't also dying right along with us. Jerry smiled going on as if never interrupted. Frenoria's breasts are quite something. Sized to overflow her own substantial hands, they sport the tiniest, most delicate of nipples, encircled by dark bronze oblongs. Jerry ran the back of her fingers over her breasts as she spoke, then pinched her nipples through the tea lightly. She actually pinched her nipples, right in front of all of us. I cannot emphasize this fact enough. She pinched them, and you could easily see how hard they were dot am I conveying how crazily well my little plot was succeeding? While the subtly strong musculature of her limbs speaks to her father's human heritage. Jerry went on. Her mother's elven form shows itself in the buoyant nature of her feminine charms, which, despite their large size, hold their round shape against gravity's clutches, completely unsupported. Indeed, they practically dance weightlessly as she breathes. I had to shift in my chair. Craig was biting his lip. Mark was achieving new levels of smugness, while simultaneously appearing a little amazed at his wife's performance. Frenoria tugs at her last garment, the simple white breech clout that encircles her below the waist, letting it fall away to uncover her full nakedness. Jerry continued to intone in her fantasy narrator tone and vocabulary. The locks below her waist matched the elven blonde atop her head, highlights of gold appearing in the flickering torchlight. She smiled puckishly as a thought struck her. Her pubes are rich, full, and unshaven or trimmed. The tiny curls of her elven hair grow in a broad triangle pointing downward to a soft thicket between. 
Realizing that she had gotten out over her toes a bit, Jerry halted her description, blushing as all she had just done and said seemed to fully register. Mark laughed for some reason. For us, for me certainly, it was as if we had been riding happily along and jerked to a halt over a steep slope. We were hanging. Trust Craig, who was easily the guy among us most ready to take a risk in this little, whatever this was, to speak first. So, is that thicket wet? He breathed and looked at him, wide-eyed. But she didn't hit him, which surprised the fuck out of me. Jerry just laughed derisively, instantly regaining her equilibrium and her smile. Is Frenoria wet? She sneered at Craig. She is standing buck-ass naked in a fucking dungeon. There is a corpse of a goddamned baby dragon right nearby. She said, pointing to the plastic dinosaur that I had used as a miniature representation of the dragon. It was lying on its side near the circle of the player's miniatures. One that is probably already starting to smell. She went on. Sir Tyrion is over there perving on me. On Frenoria, I mean. She took a theatrically sobbing breath at Tyrion's betrayal. The only thing. She finished with loud and dramatic tones. The only thing that makes her life bearable right now is that her other friends and party mates at least are respecting her privacy. Everybody laughed. Jerry wins the role-playing award tonight, exclaimed Tess with a laugh. It means the world to me that the rest of you respected my modesty like that. Jerry declared in a voice dripping with sincerity. And with that, I slip into the new bikini armor. She added firmly. Even without its magical properties, the armor would fit Frenoria exceedingly well. I went on smoothly, hoping that my suddenly business-like demeanor would add a little surreality to it all. In addition, there are small, sturdy, adjusting straps and buckles that improve the fit further. And since it is magical, the fit goes from excellent to perfect. Sir Tyrion examines the fully outfitted Frenoria closely. Craig instantly said, and just laughed. Oh no, Jerry said quellingly. You've had enough jollies, mister. I'm not making a fool out of myself twice in one night, thank you. Craig, to his credit, immediately backed down respectfully and unsurprisingly. So did the rest of us. I think we were all a tiny bit relieved to see that this new, crazy attitude could easily be turned off whenever someone asked for it to be. But Craig did make a show of pouting appreciatively, just a little. Jerry cracked a smile. Besides, I haven't had this armor for more than a minute. Give me some time to design it in my head, then come up with a really good way to describe it. Well now, that had been, way more than I had dreamed. Jerry was my new hero, and my dick's new obsession. We had also consumed way more time than I had thought that this little vignette would dot I looked at my watch. My planned last scene would push us long past our desired stopping point, and I was in no mood at that moment to go late into the night playing D&D. I looked at Tess, and she seemed to have the same thoughts I was experiencing. On that high note, I declared, I'd say we're done for this week. Let's cut things here. We usually hung around and rehashed shit once we put down the dice for the night, but Craig and N and Tess and I were all uniformly ready to head out. Jerry and Mark were similarly ready to see us go. I'll wash the serving pieces you brought tonight, guys, Jerry uncharacteristically volunteered. You can retrieve them next week. Tess and I were in our car and heading home in minutes. Two turns away from their house, Tess turned to me. I suppose you are satisfied. She growled at me. I laughed. Fuck yeah. I loved it. She let out a soft harumph and crossed her arms. You loved it too? I smirked. I was mortified. Uh-huh. But you loved it. You ended on. You loved Jerry's act too. And she loved performing it. She was even more mortified. She will never forgive you. 
Bullshit. She harumphed again. After that, we were uncharacteristically quiet on the way home, but I was tingling in anticipation. Despite my desire to get home, I drove carefully all the way there. I had such a hard-on. If we got into an accident, I knew the seatbelt would snap my dick in two. I was going to fuck the shit out of my wife when we got home. If, from the look on her face, she didn't fuck the shit out of me first. The next week, the rotation had us playing at our house. That always a tiny bit of a pain in the ass for me, as Tess uses the opportunity to dragoon me into cleaning all sorts of shit that our guests are never going to see, just in case. The group text chain that we used to take care of logistics was unusually quiet that week, with only a brief flurry of excitement when Tess asked for menu coordination and then said she was bringing her brisket. That brisket is always so damned good, but I admit, I spent more than one day leading up to game night anticipating the evening with an organ other than my stomach. Tess had mostly let the whole sexiness matter lie, as had I, once we had raced each other to bed and fucked each other senseless upon arriving home the prior week. But as we were setting up for game night that afternoon, she turned to me. You've been on your computer a lot this week. Working on tonight? Yeah, I said casually. I've been rejiggering different things here and there. Last minute ideas? You know how I get sometimes. I worked hard to keep the evasiveness out of my voice as I arranged chairs. Uh Uh-huh, Tess said in desert dry amusement. I do. So you are enjoying how this dungeon has been going? My sheepishness could not be kept inaudible. Yeah. Yes, I am, I said, growing a pair and sounding assertive by the end. I looked at her archly for a moment before putting my eyes back on the furniture. Don't keep trying to pretend that you aren't too. Tess let herself giggle for a moment. Maybe just a little bit, she admitted, holding up thumb and forefinger very close together. We worked in silence for a bit, then she turned and said earnestly, But you do need to show some restraint. I mean, you left last week's game with Jerry set up to have to embarrass herself all over again, and probably right off the bat. Hey, it's not my fault that she chose to extend her moment in the spotlight with a cliffhanger. That's on her. Tess paused at that. She did kind, didn't she? Do you think she actually meant to? I don't know, I said honestly. At first, I thought that she was just looking for an out. But over the week, I've started to wonder if she hadn't actually meant to lead everybody on. I wonder. Tess said. Who did she mean to tease more, Mark or Craig? Well, she's doing a hell of a job teasing me. I joked. That earned me a cushion to the head. Still, once she's paid the price for making you Neanderthals drool so much, I do think you ought to lay off her for a bit. She said compassionately. Of course. I'm not cruel. I said defensively. Then I added softly. Besides, she's not the only player you know. Tess looked at me, hard. I already made a fool of myself in your little game with my cleavage description. You aren't getting another one of those. And thank you for that, by the way. Besides how hot you were all on your own, you really inspired Jerry to reach great heights. You're welcome. Wait, what do you mean? Didn't you see her while you were going overboard with waving your boobs around? I asked, amused. I wasn't watching her. Well, let me tell you, she was on a high simmer watching you steal her spotlight there for a while. Really? That little minx. Tess preened. Wait. I said. You say you weren't paying attention to her. I know you didn't even look my way once. Who were you looking at while you were showing off? Tess slumped down on our couch, crossing her arms irritably. I like when she does that because it naturally lifts and displays her boobs. It dawned on me suddenly, wrapped up in my own plots for the dungeon that night. 
I had missed the fact that Tessa's wardrobe choice for this week was another wraparound blouse, but unlike last week's, this one really did rock some nice actual cleavage, not just a suggestion of it. It wasn't a very deeply open V, but with Tess, it didn't need to be. Just watch yourself, she said tartly. You are going to push someone too far. Come on. I scoffed affectionately. What's too far? We're role-playing. Everyone can do what they want, and not do what they don't. Push too hard, and somebody's going to find a way to embarrass you back. That's all I'm saying, Tess said, but with no real worry in her voice, only humorously dire warning. Just watch yourself, she said again, bouncing up from the couch to check her veggies in the oven. Nah, I retorted in a drawl. I've got better thing to watch. I said, as my eyes followed her ass into the kitchen dot I turned and racked the balls on my white regulation-sized pool table, adjusting them carefully on the red felt in the forlorn hope somebody in our group would decide to actually play with me. I have friends who do like playing pool, but these are not those friends. The bell rang a few minutes early and I opened it to see Anne and Craig. Craig was laden down and struggling with Anne's brisket and several containers of accoutrements. And demurely held a thin folder with their character sheets and a bag of dice in one hand. She cooked. Craig carded. I for one was happy with that arrangement. I did not care about Craig's level of satisfaction. After placing their food on the sideboard, Craig and I grabbed two beers and got into it about the Cubbies' needs for the rest of the season. I wanted them to go for a starting pitcher to make a run possible this year. Craig, the dirty quitter, wanted to unload a couple of impending free agents and reload. Sometimes Craig sucks, and Intess surprised us both by going for glasses of rose. Usually everybody drinks beer during D&D. I guess Anne's next level food inspired them to class things up a bit. The two of them were fun to look at as Craig and I talked. And had also chosen a little more, um, tasty clothing than usual. Her usual cargo shorts were replaced with a tight pair of cut-off jeans, just long enough to cover the bottom curves of her ass. Barely. Up top, she sported a plaid long-sleeved shirt, cuffs rolled up to the elbow, shirt tails untucked and tied together low on her belly leaving a tragically limited amount of bare, toned stomach to see. She left just enough buttons unfastened to make it interesting without making it blatant. Our two wives had both decided to play the cleavage game. At some point in our conversation, we caught each other looking, and Craig and I clicked our beers together. Our wives were well and truly blessed. And so were we. No harm in appreciating each other's good fortune. It was fifteen minutes after the usual start time, and Mark and Jerry were still not yet in evidence. We all pretended not to notice, but we were all clearly beginning to get the niggling feeling that they might not show up. Had Jerry chicken out? Had Mark gotten weird? They wouldn't ghost us, though, would they? Not without calling? The doorbell brought big smiles to us all, and Craig bounded over to let them in. Mark entered first, carrying a big wicker basket that smelled delicious. Despite the still cool weather, he was wearing his usual workout shorts, along with a Superman logo blue shirt. Behind him, Jerry entered. She was, she was wearing a pink, fluffy, footied onesie, with a hood and rabbit ears. She looked ridiculous. Cute, but ridiculous. Nobody could help but laugh. What the hell is that? And asked, the first to catch her breath. It's almost April. You must be dying from the heat. It actually breathes surprisingly well. Jerry replied good-naturedly. Then she glowered at Mark. And since someone I know forgot to use detergent when he did the laundry this morning... I had limited options to choose from. Mark hung his head extravagantly. Jerry patted him reassuringly. It's okay, honey. 
I told you this would at least get a laugh. That it did. I chuckled. But you lay about laundry losers have us running late. Let's play. We settled down around the table. I had already set up their miniatures in the same layout as the prior week, with Jerry's Frenoria still in the middle, just a reminder of unfinished business. The little figurine was still wearing a ranger's cloak and armor, alas. I'd have to invest in a Red Sonia figure or something. I was not letting Jerry replace that chain mail bikini anytime soon. Okay. So, I began. Craig instantly interrupted me. Sir Tyrion examines Frenoria carefully in her new armor, he said, firmly cutting to the chase before there could be any chance of things getting sidetracked. Really? You couldn't give her five minutes to get into the swing? And asked, no heat in her scolding, and absolutely no surprise. I just looked at Jerry for her reaction. She sat in her chair, arms on the table, fingers drumming as she squeezed her lips together in a grimace at Craig. You did kind of cliffhanger us last week with a promise of a fleshed-out description. To my surprise, that came from Tess. Jerry looked at her. E.T. too, brute? She drummed her fingers one more time. Fine. Have it your way, you pervs. She pushed herself to her feet, stepped away from the table, and turned to us. I really found that I hated that bunny suit. I was still looking forward to whatever she had cooked up as a description, and she clearly had given it some thought but hearing her words would not be the same with her standing there in that shapeless, furry suit, instead of a tight, braless t-shirt. Jerry had clearly worn the damned bunny suit to deny me, us of you. I had been so ready for some more spectacular pokies. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, so I composed a thousand words about my new chainmail bikini. Jerry said casually, then in a smooth motion, unzipped the bunny onesie, and let it fall to the floor. She was wearing a fucking chainmail bikini. A real chainmail bikini. Made from real chainmail. And it fit her so very, wow. Unlike her description of Frenoria the prior week, Jerry is almost delicately slender. At middling height for a woman, she is actually about even with her diminutive whipcord of a husband. Lithe as she is, she has more than sufficient curves in the chest and hips to hang that little metal confection on most fetchingly. The chainmail was a very fine mesh, though it was steel gray, not sparkling like the mithril I had described. Our imaginations would have to supply the sparkle. My imagination was supplying quite a lot at that moment. Not that it needed to. The design of the garment was not modest. The top was two triangles that wrapped up into a narrow band that caressed the back of her neck. At the bottom, it tucked up under and vaguely supported her breasts, attaching to a silver cord that ran around and tied across her back. The weight of the metal obviously pressed down even Jerry's pert, bouncy tits but the substantial nature of the mail itself made them look actually a little bigger. A an inch wide band of chain mail draped over and around her flaring hips, with two long triangles hanging down in front and back, the tips dangling almost halfway to her knees. I desperately wanted to know whether the bottom was just a loincloth, of if there were panties built in underneath. And if there were, were the panties chain mail too? My imagination was competing with itself to supply both images, as I found that I could not determine which option I was hoping for. In either case, it was crystal clear that no other underwear was present. Jerry waved a hand out to her side, then placed both hands on her hips, cocking a knee in a game show hostess pose, a broad grin on her face. We've been had. Holy shit. Breathed in. Well, Tess said softly. The three of us dudes remained dumbstruck. Even Mark. He had obviously seen it before, but that was hardly damning his excitement. I was betting that they had been late because he'd been trying and possibly succeeding, in taking it off her before they left. 
Now, seeing Jerry in it, seeing her stripping herself down to only it right in front of the rest of us, clearly had him revved up wildly. Jerry slowly spun around. Trust Craig to find his voice first, the horn dog. He voiced my unspoken question. Is it a loincloth, or is there more protection underneath? Sir Tyrion is curious about the martial implications, of course. He added hastily, as if he caught how pervy he sounded at the last moment. His attempt at covering did nothing to reduce the perviness. Of course that I think and wanted to smack him, but she also seemed to want to know the answer as much as he and I did. Jerry chuckled, posed even harder, then reached down and briefly brushed the front triangle far enough aside for all of us to see the narrow expanse of chain mail covering the front of her crotch underneath. When she reached down, I had honestly believed for a second that there wouldn't be anything underneath, and let myself hope I was about to actually see Jerry's pussy. My mind was racing fast enough to wonder if, as with her ranger Frenoria, the carpet matched the drapes. After her quick flash of the coverage underneath, she let it fall back into place. The back? And asked almost clinically. Jerry almost giggled, and now without the slightest hesitation or reluctance, turned her really quite amazingly tight little backside toward in, and flipped the triangle aside. I saw Craig's eyebrows shoot up. After a moment, Jerry generously turned back toward Tess, and therefore me, and I beheld the thinnest strand of chain mail, barely three links wide, running down the back, disappearing in between her cheeks. It was a thong, before Jerry could so much as drop the back panel of the loincloth back into place, she was being peppered with technical questions by Anne and Tessa like. Yes, it was real metal.no, it was not lined, but the metal was machined perfectly smooth, so nothing poked or scratched. Even down below? Tess asked as a follow-up. Uh, no, said Jerry. There is a tiny patch of soft gray fabric instead of mail down in the crotch. I really don't think you want metal chain rubbing up against your clit all the... She stopped and blushed. A pause followed that glorious moment of oversharing, then the questions resumed the thing had been ordered through Etsy. Yes, she intended to wear it the rest of the night, and possibly every night from now on. So we are a cosplay campaign now, groaned Anne. Swell, Tess agreed sarcastically but all three women were exchanging looks over the table. Jerry slid gracefully back into her chair. Can we get going now? I am proud to say that I regained my mental facilities first after all that, at least among the guys. I have responsibilities as DM, after all. I led them through the next encounter, which had supposed to have been the prior week's finale. The senile sphinx that could not remember it own riddles was a hit, and we somehow got into a more normal routine for gaming, despite Jerry sitting there looking. Well, look, I'd seen her in regular bikinis before. At least one of those had possibly been even more revealing. As a group, we don't only play D&D together. We are not total nerds. Waterparks are one of the occasional alternative Saturday activities we go for in the high summer. Bowling, believe it or not, has always been a favorite in the winters that I might be 31, and a reasonably normal adult. But I am also a lifelong, male, fantasy-slash-RPG nerd and I was confronted with a seriously hot babe in fucking chainmail bikini armor. Teenaged wet dreams that come to life are extremely hard to work your way beyond mentally, no matter how old you are. The end result was that I was constantly hovering at a low to medium level of horny, right from the start of the evening, just from Jerry sitting there, being spectacular.my new phase of the dungeon was separated from the older part by a barrier that they had to work hard to penetrate. Beyond were more subterranean passageways. The stonework was curiously clean-cut, Though badly stained out I had several early rooms planned that I now decided to set aside for later, if at all. 
Simply, I felt like I needed to get to the first of the new opportunities for embarrassment I had cooked up during the week. I had been staring too much at Jerry, I felt, and wanted to focus things, especially my own gaze elsewhere. Guilt and horniness make a potent cocktail. Not that the timing mattered. Tess was going to kill me for what was coming next. Whenever it happened, a trap door led to a large room with multiple exits. They fucked up getting through it, to Anne's character Gala's pain displeasure. She was not amused as I described the blooming magic explosion leaving her cleric Gala looking similar to Yosemite Sam after Bugs blocked the barrel of his gun with a finger. The chamber is particularly foul, I described. But the walls were probably once white, and the floor likely has some kind of seemingly beautiful geometric tile pattern under all the filth. The noise of your passage through the door and Gala's bitching fades into absolute silent silence that you all sense probably just fell in response to your arrival. Renault uses his burglar's perception to seek threats. Mark snapped. Something's out there. It's quiet, I said, rolling some dice as if that meant anything. And whatever is there is in the darkness is unbelievably numerous. Gala prepares to cast a blessing on the party, and said. The spell needed a round of combat time to cast. She could still decide to discard instead of cast it later at low cost, if she decided she didn't need to actually invoke it, but from my body language she probably thought they were going to need it. Suddenly, you all hear a rushing and a high-pitched babble of voices and cries all around, I said with an evil smile. And suddenly hordes burst forth from every entrance of the room, save the one you just came through, which is suddenly impassable backwards due to a deadfall. Hordes of what? Craig asked, his exasperation speaking for the rest of the party. Kobolds! I thundered, throwing my arms wide. There are suddenly kobolds, everywhere! They all just looked at me. Kobolds are nasty little bipedal brutes with barely sentient-level intelligence. They are disgusting, and sleep in their own excrement. They crave the flesh of humans, and they are among the easiest of first-level monsters. DMs use them as cannon fodder, even for introductory parties. These fairly high-level characters had not encountered kobolds since shortly after we first created the crew for this new campaign. Kobolds are so worthless, they are not even in the manual for the D&D variant we were using. I had had to import them. And Tess hates the damn things, since I get so gross talking about them, usually. Really, John? My wife complained instantly. Kobolds? I just looked at her evilly. There are rather a lot of them. I said good-humoredly. I punt the first one of them that even gets near me. Tess grumbled. I should have punished her for using the first person when she meant her character, but instead I didn't even make her roll. Shanora boots the first little creature that approaches her at a full run. Even though she is a mage, and not a martial fighter, given her relatively high level, the little guy shrieks in pain as he flies backward over the heads of his companions. He falls with a sickening thud, and a few of you note that several of the kobolds in the landing zone instantly fall upon him and finish him off. Kobolds love the taste of kobolds almost as much as they love the taste of human. I intoned. Sir Tyrion unhooks his mighty mace from his belt, not even deigning to draw his sword. Craig laughs. He bends his knee and beckons at the advancing beasts. Come on, little ones, he intones, aren't you cute? He looked up at me. He swings the mace in a huge arc through the crowd. Sir Tyrion's mace smashes its way through the wave of onrushing kobolds. I declare. At this level, no need to roll to hit, just damage. I rolled some dice. You hit twelve of them in the first blow. I said to a loud ha from Craig. Roll twelve d20s and add four to each roll. I instructed. Craig didn't own twelve twenty-sided dice, 
so he borrowed three extra from Mark to let him roll all in one go. Any ones? I asked. No, Craig replied triumphantly. There is a four, but most are over ten, and those are all before adding the plus four. Kobolds have up to six hit points. Most have two or three. The four you rolled means that one is merely crushed to death. I say. The rest kind of bursts like water balloons filled with blood. The nasty brown goo sprays everywhere behind your arc, all over the kobolds coming up behind. Renault's perception lets him notice that a number licked the blood off their own faces. That got a grossed-out laugh. I moved to cast. Tess began, but I held a hand out low and shushed her. In a minute, I said, refusing to turn toward her. I had other things to do, and it wasn't her turn. Frenoria and Marx Renault were both, for different reasons, more useful in combat against bigger, nastier, individual-type targets than crowds of individually weaker nasties, but they still were ten levels above these little shits, and they both slaughtered several, each with similarly gory results. Frenoria's kneeling shot with her bow and a heavy hunting arrow skewered seven on a single shaft like a shish kebab, three more than Renault killed in his first attack. Jerry lorded it over Mark. Oh, let's get the shit over with, Grumbledon, who hated my gross descriptions of kobolds only slight less than Tess. Gallifer gets the clearly not necessary blessing and drops a holy burst into the middle of the oncoming critters. As a cleric, holy burst was the most powerful of her few offensive options, but it was an impressive one. I was clearly reveling in overkill descriptions, and she had decided to oblige me. I smiled at her gratefully, which earned a tongue stuck out in my direction. With a loud plea to her patron Ferth, the god of the hunt, Gala directs a cloud of holy light to form over the kobolds and then collapse downward. As it strikes the ground, I said gleefully, it bursts outward in a thunderous clap. The expanding ring of power rips outward, catching. I rolled some dice. Seventy-eight of the little creeps in its effect. And hooped. That was a lot of targets. Don't bother with damage. I laughed. Every kobold in the area of effect utterly disintegrates above the waist. Seventy-eight little pairs of charging legs keep going for one to three strides before collapsing to the ground. That got me another laugh. How many are left after that? Mark asked triumphantly. Roll a perception check. I said with bland good humor. Mark rolled. A twenty. He declared triumphantly. Critical success. I said loudly in congratulations. Then said nothing else. They all looked at me. How many? Mark asked again. A lot. I replied. I got a critical success. Renault should be able to see the whole room, plus any left in the halls. He can. I explained, my bland grin growing nasty. He can tell there are, a lot. They are literally everywhere. The huge hole Gala just blasted in their number is filled in in literally seconds, and they are lined up down every hall, still pressing to get in and at you. Renault has no formal education and literally could not count that high. Everybody shut up for a moment at that revelation. Tess leaned forward and began. Well okay then, my. I raised my hand just little toward her and said quietly and quickly. Hang on. I'll get to you. Our eyes met for the briefest of moments, and she shut up. I love my wife. She can instantly tell when I'm doing something stupid or douchey for a reason, and she usually will back my play. Unless it amuses her not to dot and no one else even noticed, as they were all, in sightly confused and just barely concerned fashion, shouting at me what they did next. Gala went back to prepping that blessing again. Sir Tyrion went two-handed with sword and mace, and started atomizing kobolds at a clip of about twenty per round of combat. Renault and Frenoria were keeping a tally list of how many each killed.
You'd think they were Legolas and Gimli. After a round or so, Craig asked, Wait, are they even attacking us? Or are they just running around? Oh, they are attacking you all right. I said, In fact, this round they score. 21 critical hits on the various party members fighting them. 21? Came an incredulous chorus. Yep, I said. They are literally piling up around you to get at you from various heights. There is a metric shit-ton of little clawed hands and sharp teeth coming at you guys from all sides. All those critical hits means that so far, there are 42 whole points of damage spread between the party. 12 to Sir Turin. 14 to Renault. 15 to Gala. They really didn't like that holy burst she cast. Oh, and one whole point gets to Frenoria's mighty chainmail bikini. They all laughed and began to declare their next attacks. That amount of damage was trivial to these characters at this level. Tess, are you going to thin out this herd a little? Mark asked my wife. It's going to get a little boring if we don't step up the winnowing. You mean Shanora? I quickly answered for Tess. Mark narrowed his eyes. Where is Shanora? This was perfect. Roll perception, minus two. I snapped. Everyone else, including Tess, was suddenly interested. Thankfully, Mark rolled well. Renault peers down one of the corridors. It's easy to see over all the kobolds, of course. He can just make out a struggling Shanora, being carried away by one pile of kobolds while a second pile is jumping around on top of her. Guys, we need to help, said Mark excitedly. Finally, I was giving them something interesting. Everyone else is largely immobilized right now. They are killing every kobold they touch, but two more take the place of everyone they kill. I said, handing out some more minor damage. Only you, with your dexterity, have any room to maneuver. Then Reno leaps over the front line of the bastards and high steps it after Shanora. Mark said. Cool. I said, pretending to look at my notes. Let's deal with that for a few moments. You pick your way through the crowd, killing about twenty of the bastards along the way before you get into the corridor. Are there more coming ahead? Mark asked intelligently. No, not from this corridor. I replied. All the traffic in this passage seems currently one way outbound with the captured Shanora. Several other passages were still disgorging kobolds merrily, last time you saw before entering. I closed the door to prevent more coming after me. Mark said quickly, forgetting to talk about Renault and using the first person. Again, that was supposed to be a no-no, but I let it ride with a disapproving eyebrow. Renault sneaks down the hall after the beasts, using all his stealth. He said, remembering. That's better. I said in sternly mocking tones. Then I turned to Tess finally. She stared back at me, glad she had not interrupted my flow before and could now be the center of attention. My wife is a bit of a spotlight hog herself when it comes to RPGs. Well, she would have her glory now. The little bastards may be stupid, but they ain't dumb. I said to her. They must have recognized Shanora as a mage of some kind and put special effort into swarming her. She was draped in kobolds instantly, with several wrapping their whole body around her arms so she could not make the gestures needed for most spells. But she could still. Tess started to object. And two more climbed all the way up to her shoulders, where one jammed his little hat into Shinora's mouth, so she can't say words of power either. Oh, disgusting. Said Tess, looking like she might retch for real. Relax, his little hat was the cleanest thing about him. I told her. So, it's clean? Tess asked, almost hopefully. Oh, hell no. I laughed. You are disgusting. My wife told me firmly, but with a smile that admitted the humor of the situation. Immediately you are being dragged away by the huge crowd of kobolds. 
I went on. Damn it, I was the one blurring player and character now. Shanora towers over them, of course, but they soon push her over off her feet and are carrying her away. She is gagged, and everyone else is up to their ass in the little fuckers, so no one noticed her being abducted at first, until Renault sought her aid. Shanora is not letting herself be carried. Tess snorted. She fights. She may be just a mage, but these are two foot tall, level one half monsters. She can put up a pretty good fight, even without her magic, damn it. Shanora fights. I agreed. Periodically she struggles to her feet, usually killing a few of them in the process, but there are always more to take their place, and she is driven back to the ground again each time. You are not getting away from them. Am I taking any damage? Tess asked interestedly. Not really, no, I said. Your dark robes are thick and sturdy enough to protect most of you from all the little scratches and the bites they take here and there as they drag you along. Good. Then Shanora, of course. I added overriding Tess. I believe that we had a discussion, a presentation even, last week about how her robes don't cover all of her. My wife was suddenly looking at me like she was going to perform some unelective surgery on my body. Yes. I went on undaunted. One little guy for instance, actually starts gnawing on Shinora's ankle, then scrabbles his way up between her legs under her robe. He starts biting his way up the inside of her calf, moving swiftly upwards. Fuck that, yelled Tess, eyes wild, and was giggling but keeping quiet otherwise. Her character wasn't present, after all. Shinora slams her legs together. Hard. Roll a d6. I shrugged. Five, she said triumphantly. She crushes his little body. I shrugged again. It tumbles out from under her robe and two other kobolds pause to take a good bite or two of his body before running to catch up. Shanora clearly looks like she would taste better than their fellows. Shanora keeps her legs together from now on. My wife glared at me. At least until she tries to stand again. I said agreeably. The next two that crawl up under her hem go up the outside of Shanora's legs. But they seem content to just bite fairly ineffectively around her knees. I added hastily before Tess could snap at me. The bigger problem. I went on, putting on my evil DM grin, with an added touch of leer. Is further up. Tess's eyes flashed at me, but she didn't immediately stomp on me. If anything, I might have seen enjoyment in the gaze. But the gaze had an edge. She was warning me against what I was up to, and simultaneously daring me to go on. Oh no, she said, using Shinora's voice adding a bit of damsel in distress to the usually haughty tenor. Oh yes, I laughed. I can't rest a dare. Not from her. The ones who are half riding on top of you keep scratching and biting at that lovely expanse of delicious-looking skin, poking their claws into the soft flesh of your belly, scratching at your lovely long neck, and taking a bite or nine at the exposed, rounded curves of Shinora's splendid breasts. Hey! Tess laughed. Did I describe her breasts as splendid? No. I don't think so, I said. But I'm the DM, and I say they are splendid. I waggled my eyebrows at her, and she actually blushed a little, stealing a glance around the table, where everybody else was smothering chuckles, and staring at Tess intently. Character or player, no one was going to argue with the DM about splendid. She clearly liked the attention, even if she was not going to admit it. Of course, you are only taking, um, three points of damage from all this. Well then, Shanor bides her time until she can try to free her hands. They are being pretty careful about not letting her make any gestures. I said again, then paused. 
Of course, they aren't content to just attack the cleavage Shinora's showing. A few are reaching inside her robe to attack. Hey, her robe has magic to, magic to keep it in place. That's still working. I overrode her. But it doesn't keep it from being pulled outward and or reached into. The magic is not that powerful, since it is just part of your costume's description. Tess turned to Jerry with a wry expression. Great, now my tits are going to be all scratched up. They both laughed. Not badly. I hastily reassured her. I paused and looked down at my notes. Then I added casually. Of course, not all of the kobolds are even trying to cause damage. What? Tess asked flatly. Damn, she is sexy when she gets mad. Shanora can feel that at least two are just outright feeling her up. One is caressing and squeezing the undercurve of her left breast, while another kobold is actually pinching and tugging on her right nipple. Right. Those two need to die. No. Tess growled, interrupting before I could describe any additional pervert kobolds. Jerry and Anne were in stitches. Craig looked fascinated. Mark actually looked a little outraged. In the press of attackers, it is impossible to even tell which of the little bastards are copping the feels. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. She stands up again. Tess exclaimed. No way I'm letting this go on. Sure, I said, shrugging. She kicks and struggles and rides scenically. Several kobolds, including one of the ones feeling her up, go flying. She struggles to her feet. Most of the monsters who are attacking the opening in her robe fall off of her now, too. The one who was fondling your nipple is the last to fall, and you can target him. Drop kick, Tess said flatly. That's my chance, Mark said in sudden eagerness. Without waiting for me to respond, he went right on. Renaud dashes forward, still using stealth. His dagger is too short, so he just grabs one of the fucking kobolds and swings it through the mass of them in an arc like Sertirian did with his mace. I rolled some dice and shook my head. Your surprise is almost complete. Almost, I said, and Mark groaned. Fortunately, the one kobold who notices you before the attack is the one you use as a club. His little eyes go comically wide as you grab his ankles and swing him around. Let's see how you do. On the downside, you don't have Sertirian strength or skill, and the kobold is a just little meat bag, not a metal mace. I said, dampening expectations. But you do have total surprise. Kobolds go flying everywhere. You outright kill nine with a swing and knock twice that many aside injured. Um, the one you used as a weapon is now more than useless for another swing. He took damage equal to what you dealt to all the others combined. That got a wince of almost sympathy from everybody, even Tess. Your total surprise grants you at least one more action before they start to react. I added, Mark pumped his fist. There's still a ton of them, right? He asked me. I nodded emphatically. Then first things first. Renault reaches out and yanks Shanora free of the press of kobolds to stand next to him. If I can, he tears the ones holding her hands and arms free. You succeed. I said. Shanora stumbles but remains standing, now next to you and temporarily free of Klingons. About fucking time. Said Tess triumphantly. She stood up, indicating that she was really getting into it now. She mimed yanking the kobold hat from her mouth. Shanora yanks out that disgusting hat spitting as she does so. Stand close, she instructs Renault. Mark shrugged and stood up next to her, miming kicking kobolds. Tess kicks him too, for good measure. Shanora raises her hands, speaks a word of power, and casts ice sheet. Tess said triumphantly. Oh. Nice. Chuckled Jerry. Ice sheet is a fun spell. 
A wave of magically frigid ice radiates out from the caster, coating the ground in a cold, totally frictionless surface. With the strength of monster that the spell is intended to be used against, the main function is to immobilize them, or make them slip and fall down. But the spell's cold does do at least a little incidental damage. A little damage is a lot, with cobalts. The ice spreads out. I described. Renault is close enough to you and a safe center to keep his footing. I went on, and Mark sidled up near enough to my wife to press against her side, staring around as if at doomed kobolds. But every single kobold in the room falls down. Most die from the initial cold, freezing before they hit the ground, but those that initially survive, die as soon as they fall and the rest of their body comes in contact with the ice. A whoop of triumph went up from everyone around the table. The two of you are left standing there, in a five-foot circle of stone, surrounded by a thick layer of hyper-slippery ice, with the bodies of hundreds of frozen kobolds sliding aimlessly around on it. Finally, the sound of their incessant chatter is gone. Mark pumped his fist again at Jerry, then Craig. Tess flashed me a grin, but then her eyes narrowed with an evil twinkle. How long does the ice last again? Before we can move away without falling and hurting ourselves? Uh. Confused, I looked at the manual. It says ten minutes. I looked at them and laughed sadistically. Sorry, you took yourselves out of the battle for a while. I love when players do something on their own to inconvenience themselves. It enhances my reputation as an evil genius thinking three steps ahead. Marx swore a little at their sudden enforced idleness, but Tess seemed like she was on the verge of a precipice. I frowned. Then she took a breath and looked at me with an expression I know very well as akin to I told you so. What the fuck? Why was I feeling like I was supposed to regret this? Renault, she said, turning to Mark and using Shinora's haughtiest of voices. You are my hero. Then she leaned over and kissed Mark full on the lips. His eyes widened, and he froze. Tess didn't stop kissing him. I heard a gleep from him. But I also heard a quiet. Oh, from Jerry that held no anger. Only amusement, and maybe something more. Mark heard it too. As soon as he did, he started kissing my wife back. It did not take but a few seconds before their silly performance morphed into a seriously hot and bothered exploration of each other's mouths. Tongues were definitely in play. I felt my fists ball up as I sat there dumbfounded while one of my best buds practically tongue-fucked my wife's mouth. But, it was role-playing, right? It might be crazy over the top, but that's just role-playing at its best. Right? Matt wasn't French kissing Tesserno was Frenching Shanora. It was a bullshit, but somehow an important distinction. As long I kept up that fiction we'd been building on the last few weeks, all was well. Moreover, Tess was clearly hoisting me upon my own petard, and I was damned if I was going to give her the satisfaction of getting upset and proving her right. Finally, well, I was so fucking hard I couldn't sit straight. It looked so fucking hot, watching her kiss Mark. The comedy DM and me wanted desperately to mention something about Cobalt had aftertaste now in both their mouths. But I knew if I did, they, good role players that they are, would have broken off the kiss. I was shocked to realize that I actively did not want that to happen yet. That is a high-level revelation, people. Honestly, I had never really recovered from how worked up I had gotten when Jerry had done her little bikini reveal. Anytime I had started to calm down, my eyes had passed over that bikini again, and I was back to low-level horniness. I seriously doubt it was much different with the other guys. And apparently with my wife too. Tess and Mark were flat out making out in front of the rest of us now and we were all leaning in and watching in rapt attention. Again, it was not Tess and Mark, but Shanora and Renault who were making out. 
The distinction that this really was still part of the game was becoming easier to internalize. As a group, we had almost from the beginning done little skits, or otherwise just acted things out sometimes. Often it was for the humor of it, sometimes to make a point very clear, and sometimes just to stretch the participants' legs. This was pretty much par for the course in a way, just with a layer of suddenly desperate horniness overlaying everyone. It was just a fun addition to the game. Right? I watched as Mark's hand came to rest on Tessa's breast, caressing it tentatively at first, but when no protest came from either me or Jerry in the peanut gallery, he began to squeeze it gently. Tess just pressed her chest against him at first, still kissing him. But after a moment, she broke free of their kiss. Making no move to dislodge Mark's hand, Shanora exclaimed, You take liberties, Renault! Renault grinned. I am a thief. I take what I want! Several of us laughed at that, including Tess. She kissed him again lightly, then went on. Well, while I did, of course, kill most of them myself, your timely entrance did indeed save me. These miserable creatures likely have no more than five coppers among them, and you deserve a better reward than that. With that, my wife smiled and sank to her knees in front of Mark. My eyes must have been wide as saucers. I sat there frozen. Tess resolutely did not look my way. This had been my rocket ship. I was indeed to be made to experience the consequences that could come with the ride. She did share a quick glance with Jerry as she knelt. Jerry simply looked back with an expression of what I'll call horrified glee. One of her hands was idly massaging her breast through the chain mail of her bikini. It wasn't quite permission, but it wasn't a denial, that was for sure. Mark again froze as Tess ran her hands up the front of his black shorts. He was clearly already hard. She tugged the elastic waistband loose and down to his knees, and his cock bobbed up before her. Mark may embody one Asian dude stereotype in owning a martial arts dojo, but he quite thoroughly does not comply with a certain other. I have a nice, solid, top of the average six inches when excited. My friend had to be a minimum of seven inches long, with a scimitar-like curve to his shaft. And he was shaven bald down there. I had certainly not seen that wrinkle coming. My. I heard and gasped gently. Tess, no, Shanora, stroked his length for a moment, and he shivered. Mark, not Renault, stared at me, his eyes as wide as mine doubt I could have easily stopped this. Everybody in the room probably expected me to, including myself. I could say something virtually anything, and the spell would break, we'd all laugh, and the evening would continue, just with the sexual overtones ratcheted up about ten notches. Jerry could have stopped it too, of course. But for some reason, it was like everyone looked to me but I said nothing. I only looked at Mark's face, smiled goofily and shook my head, not in denial, but in bemused wonder. Suddenly his expression changed and he hoofed a little. Tess had sucked him in past her lips and was immediately bobbing her head up and down on his shaft. His eyes shifted from mine downward to the top of Tess's head. As if she sensed he was now looking at her, she tilted her head to look back up at him. In the stunned silence of the room, the slurping sound of her efforts seemed loud. She held his gaze until he trembled, then she bent back down to take him deeper. My wife is really good at giving head, by the way. She already had mad skills when I had first met her, and she had enthusiastically honed her craft in the ensuing years. I am pretty sure that I may be boasted of her expertise in general terms once or twice, in the rare times it was just us guys talking. You know as one does, Mark was getting to know the reality of my boast, as I could tell Tess was really giving it her best. She is quite proud of Shanora. It made sense that Tess would ensure that her character would give great head too. The sorceress did everything great. Shanora released Renault's cock from her mouth for a moment, 
worked her jaw a little, then sucked him back in. I could hear a little gurgling and then a quiet. She it. From Craig as she slowly, inexorably slid every last inch of Renault's seven past her lips and into her throat. You could see her neck distend slightly where it reached. Just a little dot so this is what she looked like, doing her thing. Fucking fuck, my wife was hot. Pride? I was feeling pride at my wife sucking on my good friend's dick. Deep-throating wasn't particularly hard or uncomfortable for Tess, though it wasn't really her favorite part of giving head. She usually reserved the feat for special occasions, or maybe when I surprised her with something nice. That said, she was really going to town with the experience at the moment. Saving Shinora's virtue from perverted kobolds appeared to be a very special occasion. Still, the display soon ended, and she let what seemed like miles of cocks slide free from her mouth. Shanora gasped for air for just a moment, taking hold of Renault's dick as she did so. She looked down at his smooth, hairless balls. I was pretty sure that Tess had never seen a pubeless man in person, and she was clearly curious. With her free hand, she stroked at his balls for a moment, before bending down and kissing them lightly. Then she licked them. Then she sucked one ball into her mouth, slowly working his cock with her hand. Mark just shuddered. This is some mighty fine knife work. To make yourself so smooth, my thief, Shanora said, letting his scrotum free from her lips. I, uh, a thief must be good with a knife, stammered Renault. And I often have some help, Mark added sheepishly. Lucky tavern wench, murmured Shanora, sucking his head into her lips once more. Jerry stifled a powerful giggle that I could tell that Tess was done fooling around and showing off. She actually intended to make Mark come, now. Her hand began to work him hard her other cupping his balls, tugging gently at them. She only had a couple of inches of him inside her mouth, which I knew from experience, and I could see from the way her cheeks moved, meant that her tongue was utterly torturing his head in there. Mark wobbled unstably. I'm... Look! I'm... I'm gonna... He warned Tess almost incoherently. She only clamped her lips down harder and squeezed the base of his shaft, bobbing her head swiftly, and I watched as my buddy shot his wad into my wife's mouth right in front of me and his own wife. It seemed like quite the load too. Ought to have been. I knew what he had just been treated to. I was practically coming in my pants in sympathy. Shinora's throat flexed as she swallowed, then swallowed again. Her hand slowed, and Renault's shoulders slumped involuntarily. She sucked audibly on him, running her hands up his shaft to milk him of every drop. With a final lick, she stood and kissed him again with open mouth. Mark had just learned what I knew from long experience— if you were going to come in Tessa's mouth, you were going to taste what you provided soon after. Heaving a deep breath, standing there with her arms lightly on Mark's shoulders and his softening dick bouncing between them, she asked, in Shinora's voice, Where are the others? Back in the first chamber, Renault said, jerking upright. With the rest of the world's supply of kobolds. We better help, exclaimed Shinora. Tess turned and slid swiftly back into her chair at the table. Mark spazzed for a moment, then pulled up his shorts and slid into his seat beside Jerry. She held up her hand to pause everyone and kissed Mark affectionately on the lips, happily, but with no urgency. Tess, on seeing this, turned and kissed me too, but deeply and with lots of tongue. When she broke off, she and Jerry shared a gaze for a moment or two. Then Jerry grinned puckishly and asked Tess slyly, You got it all. What did you think of the taste? Not too bad, I said. Kinda salty. I wiped my lips, still wet from kissing Tess. Everybody broke up at that. For the record, yes I could actually still taste Mark in her mouth. After years of marriage to my wife, with her habits, 
I was very familiar with the taste of cum, though hitherto always my own. This was different from what the aftermath of my own offerings tasted like, and that was just weird as all fucking hell. But also fucking hot. God damn, but my wife can give head. Renault and I burst into the main chamber, declared Tess, getting everyone back on track for me. Things are not much changed in here from when Renault left. I said briskly, my responsibilities as DM getting my head back in the game. Except that there are dead and broken kobolds stacked and scattered like toys everywhere. The endless supply may be running low, since there are fewer still coming from other corridors. Craig swiftly moved his, Jerry's, and Anne's figurines into a small triangle at the edge of the play space. The three of our characters are fighting back-to-back near the entrance where we came in, he swiftly said. Tess looked at all that wide open space in the rest of the room, filled with most of the kobolds and smiled thanks at Craig for setting her up like that. Fire in the hole! She shouted, raising her arms. Everybody good-naturedly put their hands over their ears. Shanora casts a fireball into the open area. I supplied before Tess could even say it. The overpressure is deafening, but in an instant you are down to only about ten live kobolds apiece. I decide to stomp my last ten, and said, feeling a bit left out of the proceedings, and wanting to add at least a little flair to the story. Ooh, let's all do that, chimed in Jerry. Fine, I said. You all look like idiots, I mean, like crazed wine makers, as you run around, stomping fleeing kobolds to paste. And the battle is finished. Good, I hate kobolds, and said. And I'm a little hurt. How come Jerry's and my characters didn't get felt up? Craig laughed. Oh, you both got felt up your fair share. I reassured and mollifying her slightly. But you both have armor on. It makes it hard for poor little kobolds. And pointed dramatically at Jerry and her armor. How on earth does that make it hard? I looked at and straight in the eye, and in all seriousness said, If you don't understand how that armor makes things hard, I'm sure Craig can explain it to you. And with that, the dungeon progressed onward, just like a normal night. No one made a single, fucking, out loud comment about what had just happened. Not one. There was a definite undercurrent, though. Jokes were laughed at harder, and people kept getting distracted for no apparent reason. But we were having a ball, with the whole game. I want to stress, not just the crazy highlights that a little less than an hour later, after several standard monsters and trap sequences, I realized we were coming to my final questionable set piece of the night. I bit my lip inwardly. This room was supposed to be my chance to make an uncomfortable and let her have a little flirty fun in turn. But my attempt to give my wife a little flirty fun had ended up with Mark's cock buried in Tessa's throat. I found that I still, to my surprise, was okay with what had happened. But if I went with this next scene, after what had happened with Tess, how would and react when she realized I was pointing the spotlight in her direction? Would she think I was demanding that she go overboard even a tenth as gloriously as Tess had? Would she resent that? Would she maybe do that? How would Craig react? Eh, he had mostly been enjoying the embarrassment of others so far, not feeling much of his own. He would just have to deal. And was my concern, but also my target. I decided that I felt confident that if and did not want to be naughty, She knew how to say no. I doubted she'd go full psycho like my wife. But a man can dream. I took a deep breath and turned the page in my notes. The corridors change again in character. I said, as they pushed through a door. The ceilings are higher here, and Posse's a slight arch. The stone here was also once white, though now stained, and the corridors are much wider now. You realize that this is not, or at least was not, a dungeon at all. It's underground and full of monsters and treasure. 
asked Jerry curiously. What the hell else would it be? This was once a catacomb, I reply. And that is? One of them asked for all. I waved the game master's guide idly. It's a conceit in this game. A catacomb is like a dungeon, except it is filled with good monsters like unicorns and fairies and spokes leprechauns for serial companies, and you send parties of evil alignment characters in. That sounds fun to try sometime, observed Craig. But this catacomb must have become overrun by evil, I said. Well, intoned Gala, we must find the source of this evil and dispel it from this holy place. Yes, I thought. You go, Anne. This is be the best possible point of the night for you to get all assertive and holy, and you up and get all assertive and holy for me. It could not have happened better if I had planned it, which I had. You find yourself in front of huge doors, made of ancient wood. There is a giant tree carved into the surface, along with what once might have been figures of men and maidens all over beneath it. But those images have been defaced badly and they are hard to make out. At least one of the female figures is still undamaged enough to see that she just might have been naked, though. Is this supposed to be a comedy dungeon or a sex dungeon? Chirped Anne. It is supposed to be what you guys make of it. I said calmly. Remember, you are the storytellers. I'm just here to set you up. There was a quiet pause and everybody was probably reflecting on how epic the story had gotten earlier. While Renault was checking the door for traps, the others examined it further. And, I said, Gala realizes that there are religious symbols on the door, arranged to indicate this is probably the entrance to a temple. I check closer. She replied. Can I tell to whom it was dedicated? You are excited to realize that this appears to have been dedicated to a deity in the same pantheon as your own patron, Ferth, god of the hunt. I said. Who? Which one? And asked, excited. You can't tell for sure. I said mysteriously. She flipped me the bird. Renault finds the door clear of traps. Probably. Allow me. And said. First, Gala goes ahead and places a full blessing on the party. Even if there are no actual monsters inside, we might want it, since we are entering a temple that probably has been desecrated. I want to avoid any curses. I nodded acceptance. Then I place my hands upon the door, mutter a prayer to Ferth, and push it open. The doors swing wide. I intoned, revealing a huge chamber with vaulted ceilings. The once alabaster walls are scratched and coated in filth of all natures. The central aisle is wide, and was once flanked on either side by stone furniture that has all been smashed. Looking closely, it doesn't look like the rubble used to be traditional pews, but maybe more like couches or something. At the other end of the room is a raised dais with a huge altar of white marble that is shot through with dark veins. It has resisted much of the filth surrounding it, but still seems dull and worn, even sickly. You can only see it from this far away due to a weak beam of light filtering down from above. Seems like there was once a shaft from the surface that would have been cut to bring sunlight down onto the altar. Now, it is clearly clogged and blocked, and what light makes it through is sickly and filtered with nasty green. Oh, this is horrible, cried Anne. Gala rushes toward the altar to examine it. Look out, Craig grumbled, but I shrugged and told her that she reached the altar, well in front of the party. Can she now tell who the god it is dedicated to is? Anne asked. Her knowledge is mostly concentrated on her own god, of course, I said, but she should be able to tell. The altar seems to have retained enough of a residual trickle of power to resist most of the destruction in here, however long ago it happened. You check and see that the symbols are clearly of Fertha's sister and wife, Greya, the goddess of love. Tess snorted at that. 
Wait, sister and wife? Jerry asked. You. The gods are always doing their siblings. And said offhandedly. Who know what crazy shit they get up to. The celestial sphere is like backwards Mississippi. We mortals just have to roll with it. She pondered for a moment, then grinned. She stood up from her chair and turned to my pool table. Gala approaches the altar and kneels to pray, she said, kneeling at the end of the pool table. Since she was wearing those shorts, this afforded us all a very nice view of her round, extremely fit ass. The denim rose up nicely in this position and revealed a bare crescent at the bottom of her hard curves. Without looking back at us, she asked me, What does the altar look like? Well, you chose a good prop, I said. Let's say it is about the size and height of my pool table, and its marble is streaked and stained badly, but somehow remains largely free of the most disgusting of the filth. The top is flat and smooth, but carved with delicately engraved scenes. In places, they have been blotted out by determined vandals, but most have resisted destruction. Tell me about them, and asked. Are you sure? I asked playfully. The others fell silent as she looked over her shoulder at me for a long moment. Then she grinned. In detail, she purred, rising to her feet. She straightened and crossed her legs, and bent forward to lean on the fleet of the table, pointing her ass right at me and the rest of us from a new, possibly even more enticing angle. The front left quadrant depicts pairs of lovers, all engaging in coitus. I said, each pair is employing a different position to fuck. Gala is examining what might as well be the Kama Sutra. The front right quadrant, on the other hand, depicts scenes of courtly love, not sex. So that's boring. Observed and to laughter. The back left is a larger scale scene of Greya and her brother slash husband, Gala's god Ferth, having sex in the sky, while tiny figures of her followers all either screw or court below them. Ferth is hung like a fucking horse. I added with a grin. Of course. And smirked loftily. The last quadrant is the most damaged, and is hard to make out. I said, not providing a description mostly because I was running out of ideas to rile up and with. Gala cast a blessing on the altar, and said, after a moment's thought, she had stood, but was still facing away from everyone. She really has a nice ass, so I didn't mind. Okay, I replied, but you can tell it neither hurts nor helps things, alas. The altar has been desecrated, its power drained. So there is nothing left? It is ruined? And asked, turning and looking at me in disappointment. I shrugged. Well, it still resists the filth and vandalism, so something of the divine spark must still remain, but not much. If the goddess even remembers its existence, it probably pains her physically. I was just improvising at this point, letting her roll. The point was to get her to crack the thing open. Then I guess we must reconsecrate it then. And declared. Um, does Gala know how to do that? What? Swell, more wasted time before I could spring my treat dot. Hm, I said. I really had no idea. But and was driving the story, even if it wasn't where I had anticipated. I don't think so, but she probably has some ideas. Just give it a try. Tell a good story. You know the drill. And smirked for a moment, then bit her lower lip. She looked us all over for a moment, ending up staring at her husband. This will be dangerous but it must be done, and intoned in Gala's angelic voice. As a priestess of the Pantheon, I cannot allow this holy altar to remain like this, a blight upon the world, and stood at the foot of the table, facing away from us, feet spread wide apart. She raised her hands up and arched her back, looking at the ceiling. We had a general rule in our group, 
that you could get away with a lot that your character did not officially have the stats or knowledge for, if you really sold the story. O Greya, goddess of love, hear the humble servant of your brother-husband Ferth. Feel his love, and paused and glanced over her shoulder at us. All of it, she added with a smirk in her own voice. Then she turned back to the pool table. Look with favor as I consecrate this once holy altar to you again, returning it to its power and originally intended use. Return in full your power and grace to this house and to this altar. May it never fade again. And held that position dramatically for a moment. And turned around and began talking to me crisply. Okay, here's what Gala is going to do next. I hope this works. First, she is going to doff her holy tabard from over her armor and hand it to Frenoria to hold safely. With that, she untied the knotted tails of her plaid blouse from under her bust, undid the only two buttons that were actually fastened in the first place, and then opened the shirt wide and slid it off of her shoulders. She handed it to a stunned but grinning Jerry. She wasn't wearing much in the way of a bra, just a thin, lacy, black number that barely contained her delicious mounds, swaying as she shouldered her way out of the shirt. She had everyone's attention to the full and then some. Now Gaia removes her armor, just letting it fall to the ground. That can get dirty. And went on. She reached behind her back and unhooked the bra. With a shrug, she let it fall forward down her arms, releasing its cargo and falling to the floor. She heaved a deep breath, which believe me, with those breasts, was nothing to be missed. They probably did not have the actual volume of Tessa's natural wonders, but they rode high and full, buoyant and bouncy. Yet they still retained a mostly natural shape. They'd have been utterly convincing had they been half the size. As it was, they were nevertheless utterly mesmerizing. I started in my chair as I realized that Jerry's description of Frenoria's naked breasts the week before had essentially been a description of Anne's, right down to the fucking amazing nipples. Jerry had clearly seen them before. Had and realized that she was Jerry's life model? If so, did it upset her, or had it just added fuel to this little display? And Tess had said before that she knew for a fact that those insane breasts were fake had my wife seen them before, too? I really wanted to find out more about that question, but that was for later. My mind was in a crazy whirl. I had certainly not expected, and to just give us a fucking show. All I knew for sure at that moment was that I am a mad genius. Fortunately, I have a set of raiments that should do for worshipping the goddess of love. Said N. You mean you are Gala? Asked Craig his eyes nearly as riveted as the rest of us. He certainly wasn't used to his wife showing off her assets in front of others, at least not in recent years, and was a very successful bartender these days. But a few clues had made me wonder sometimes if maybe, back in the day, and had had a somewhat different job in a certain kind of place that sold drinks. The casual ease with which she got topless added fuel to that speculation. Whichever, I said, waving away any pronoun penalty. They are certainly a lovely set dot. That got a groan or two. Tessa's poke into my ribs was perfunctory at best. Gala is going to climb atop the altar, declared N. She hopped up to sit on the edge of the pool table, then pushed back and spun herself around to sit facing away from us. Then she lay backward until her shoulder blades rested right on the front edge of the table. She let her head drop backward until it hung down, and she was looking at us upside down. Those edifices thrust upward magically, the dark nipples at their peaks were like watchtowers atop guarding hills. She let her arms sweep wide and dangle downward, further tugging her breasts toward us. Gala lays herself out like a sacrifice atop the altar, and said as she kicked first one leg into the air, letting it fall back out wide, then repeated with the other. She stared right at me, 
a crazy sexual tableau of upthrust tits. Will this be enough to reconsecrate the temple? She asked me in a calm, serious voice, as if this were any other normal game scene. I, I, I can't say. I managed to get out. I mean, when you have everything for your entire ritual set, then declare your attempt at consecration. You'll only know one way or the other when you try. I really wasn't trying to be mysterious with her. I was just on Dungeon Master Autopilot, and this was how DMs handled improvisations like this. Also, I wondered if she might go any further, whatever that might mean. So if I don't nail it, I probably don't get a second chance. This topless vision asked, as if she was setting up some kind of complicated combat maneuver. I just shrugged. It was easier than actually forming words, a skill I had once possessed, in a previous life, when I wasn't staring to those crazy awesome, obviously fake but it did not matter, tits, and grinned. Good. Let's absolutely nail this then. Sir Tyrion, Renault, attend me. She commanded in Gala's tones. Craig practically leapt from his chair. Mark was momentarily bemused, and it took a sharp elbow in his ribs from Jerry to set him in motion. Once he rose and took the first step, he approached and eagerly enough, staring down at her torso as intently as her husband. We must release all the energy we can, my good men, says Gala. And explained, and her outstretched hands moved to rub up and down both guys' crotches. After several languid strokes, and demanded in Gala's voice, Present me your instruments of Grey's worship, my companions. Place them in my hands. She rippled her fingers in a beckoning gesture. You would think that Craig would have no reluctance to pull out his dick. And was his wife after all. But the quick, furtive glance he shot us reminded me that, for all his boisterous teasing of everybody else the last couple of weeks, this would be the first time that he'd be placed in the limelight. I was fucking positive that Craig had never shown a group of people his dick. Even in a gymnasium shower, no guy had seen it as hard as it had to be right now. Mark beat him to it. He had already had his dick out and openly in the mouth of someone other than his wife that night, thus he was over the hump of exposing himself. He barely did more than toss a fleeting grin toward Jerry before he tugged his shorts right down to his knees. Renault was having a very, very good night and reached out toward him, then delicately, teasingly pulled her hand back. Pull them all the way off, Mark, she said in her normal tones. I don't want you to stumble. Now Mark was the one taken aback, which gave Craig time to gather his wits. He dropped his pants to his ankles and stepped out of them toward in. She smiled and grasped his shaft gently. Mark was right behind though, stepping out of his shorts as well, and moving closer to in. She turned her head and stroked his dick with her fingertips exploratorially. Lose the shirts, guys. She murmured with a smile. When a hot woman has your dick in her hand and tells you to remove your shirt, you remove your shirt. Even if she has another guy's dick in her other hand at in moments, both guys were stark naked, hovering over and, though as far apart from each other as they could manage. Craig towered over Mark, almost a foot taller. His body, though muscular, did have the slight edge of softness you would expect from a few more years of middle age, coupled with a lot less time at the gym. He didn't exactly look pudgy next to Mark's slender, steel-cord muscles. But let's just say that Mark's diminutive form was hardly overshadowed. Craig's cock was thankfully average length like mine. I'm not sure how I'd have handled it had I been the small guy out of the three of us. His cock was straight as an arrow and uncircumcised, which seemed a novelty to the rest of us. Both of them were hard as Toledo steel. Both cocks now firmly in her grasp, Gala started massaging them, smoothly and slowly. Craig hummed his approval fully relaxed and into it as Sir Tyrion at last. Then and turned her head, 
opened her mouth and slid her lips over the throbbing maroon head of Craig's cock. He leaned his hips forward slightly, pressing more of himself into her mouth. Gala swayed her head softly, slurping Tyrion in and out in riveting fashion. She still slowly stroked Renault as well, but come on, Craig was Anne's husband. He was going to get the main effort. Then Gala released Tyrion's cock with a pop, turned her head, and sucked Renault in between her lips. Her slurping as she sucked on him was possibly even louder. Mark and Craig managed to tear their eyes from Anne's tits to stare at each other. Mark smiled weakly at Craig, and Craig returned the look with a smile that was simultaneously welcoming and a little territorial. Suddenly, Gala's mouth was back around Tyrion's shaft. Tess, Jerry, and I all stared, open-mouthed, at least my mouth hung open, as in quite successfully pleasured two guys orally at once. Her hands and lips were a blur as she worked back and forth between them. I have literally no idea how long she went, before both guys were shifting their feet and otherwise looking extremely intent. Gala left them both alone, orally at least, while she commanded them. You must both anoint me with your offerings so I may present them to the goddess during consecration. Sir Tyrion, you shall spill your seed across my face, Gala instructed. While Renault, you shall spend yourself upon my bosom. Mark snorted, but shifted his hips to aim for Anne's upthrust wonders. Craig happily moved slightly forward to rest his cock against his wife's lips. No, Sir Tyrion, Gala spoke, alarmed. Please send no more of your offering into my mouth than possible. I know that Greya is a jealous goddess, and would not wish to share her sacrifice with this fragile vessel. With that, she was jacking both men furiously, their members quite slick from her spittle. No, grunted Sir Tyrion suddenly. Gala clamped her mouth shut and closed her eyes. Craig nudged like a lawn sprinkler over his wife's sweet face. Rope after rope of spume slapped down across her cheeks, nose, eyes, and forehead. He moaned loudly through the whole ejaculation. It was a lot of cum. A whole lot dot you'd think the whole evening so far had had him on a sexual knife's edge or something. Almost before Sir Tyrion was done making his offering, Renault's cock burst forth with Mark's second orgasm of the last hour. It had nothing on Craig's for total volume, but it spattered everywhere across Gala's tits. Renault was almost silent until he was finished, then exhaled in a long, loud, contented sigh, still clutching both guys' members, and opened her one eye that was not coated with jizz to look at me. That had better do it. She told me almost warningly. Gala triggers the consecration. Does it work? A half-naked woman, covered in cum, still clutching the softening cocks of two fully nude guys looked at me expectantly. The two nude dudes looked at me too. Honestly, I didn't know what to say. The whole scenario was so far beyond my own little sneaky machinations, I was at a loss on how to proceed. I shrugged. Full disclosure, I told the group. I never in a million years would have thought that you guys might try to reconsecrate the temple much less that you might come up with a remotely plausible way to do it. The three of them stared at me. I looked at Anne, who was still hanging her head upside down, returning my gaze. A rivulet of cum broke loose from her eyebrow and ran down her forehead and into her hair that I really needed to disappoint them. Having a powerful temple of good, okay, let's call it a temple of fucking awesome, in this spot would wreck what had supposed to have been another couple of weeks of story but disappointing them might reduce the chance of crazy shit like this happening again. My problem is that y'all solution, in addition to being. I coughed. Entertaining. Also makes fucking sense. I paused, grimacing. Gala invokes the power she has gathered. I said in a dramatic voice. At first nothing happens, then there is a strangely crisp aroma of burning vegetation. No smoke. No rancidity. Just smoke. 
light flares above the altar, and you all look up to see the vile green, unnatural vegetation that was choking the light shaft above, burning away in a white, silent fire. The three of them actually looked up, they were so into the roll. The cold marble of the altar suddenly warms beneath Gala's naked back, and you all perceive a growing glow that does and yet does not emanate from the stone. It grows brighter than flares. When the light dies, the marble is no longer the stubborn, dull white it was when you entered, but is now a colorless, translucent stone, shot through with veins of what now looks like opal. The power of the goddess floods back into her temple, and washes over the party as a whole. I went on. When it fades away, the entire temple is clean. Skilled artisan followers of Greya will be needed to restore the carvings, of course, but that is a longer-term problem. You all feel the powerful effects of the goddess's blessing. Yeah? What are those? Tess asked curiously. The entire party each gains two points of charisma each. That's permanent, folks. I said, there was a stir of old cool from everyone. In a roleplay heavy game, charisma is more valuable than you think. Plus, everyone liked to feel attractive. Gala, as both the architect and the vessel of the temple's liberation, gains two additional boons. I added, First, she immediately gains a level. Yes, it happens right now, in the middle of the dungeon. Set her experience points to midway toward the next level after the new one, and... And second, Gala is granted Greya as a second patron deity. Is there a dual deity clerical mechanic in this game? What does that even mean? And asked eagerly. There is not such a mechanic. I replied. I selfishly just made it up. I added winking at her to appreciative chuckles. As for what it means, we will just have to work that out together going forward. I took a breath. The light has faded. The room is bright. But you guys had better clean out whatever turned this overall catacomb into a dungeon, or in short order a bunch of orcs or similar nasties are going to break back into the temple here and shit on the altar again. By the time Anne had sat up, wiped her face and her tits, mostly, free of jizz, and then rebuttoned her shirt, the brow was ignored on the floor, the guys were dressed and seated again as well. And away we all went with the game again, as if half of us had not just participated in the craziest sex act I'd ever witnessed or sort of been a part of. Our energy level was now crazy. Bad jokes were rife and got far too much laughter. Even moderately nasty damage in combat led to wild, over-the-top histrionics. But everybody still seemed intent on continuing to play. The prior week, after things first got weird, everybody was independently intent of rushing home to bang their spouses. While this was admittedly a little earlier in the evening than when things broke up the prior week, the real difference this time was that everyone seemed intent on what else might yet happen tonight. Don't get me wrong over the next half hour. A fair portion of my idle thoughts were dedicated to what I intended to do to Tess when we did finally get home. I was really hoping that we still had that can of Rady Whip in the fridge. But on we went, having a great time clearing out the more interesting rooms with the more interesting treasures. I was rapidly discarding whole, sometimes previously important, segments of this catacomb slash dungeon since the temple scene had fucked up all my plans that here's to fucked up plans. I was furiously rewriting as we went, but despite the chaos, I managed to make only one really glaring continuity error, for which I was roundly booed, of course. Added energy came from everybody being definitely on edge, and the edginess seemed aimed at Jerry. At every room we entered, Tess seemed to keep her eyes on her, and healed Jerry's character first after every battle. Of we three husbands, Mark was the only one who wasn't touching his own wife just a little more than usual. Mark hovered near Jerry instead, not quite anxiously. Craig wasn't even pretending that he wasn't staring at her tits in that bikini. Of course, that hadn't really changed.
He'd been staring at her tits all night. Yes, so had I. Jerry herself could not keep still in her chair. I surmised that they were all thinking what I had been thinking Jerry hadn't had a turn. Oh, sure, she had kicked things off with what had originally been intended as the feature attraction, when her chain mail bikini revealed through my little teasing scene from the week before back into my face, turning things up to eleven. But let's face it, after tests and ends antics, so, I was acutely aware that Jerry needed to be put on the spot even more than she had before. Beyond that, I was clueless, in more ways than I knew, how to set her up. I had no such scenario primed. My plan for the evening had been to make Jerry embarrass herself at the start when she described the bikini, then embarrass my own wife by describing her character getting felt up extensively by her least favorite monsters, and finally have and find that the defiled altar opened, open it, then have to describe the multiple, shattering orgasms the last energies of the dying altar inflicted on Gala. Fuck. I had forgotten to give them the actual treasure that was in the altar, but now, to say my plans had been overtaken by events would be an understatement. I had no brilliant ideas for what else to do to slash for Jerry's character. I had the vague idea that getting her out of that bikini would be a good goal, but as for how to manage even that, I was at a hard loss. And things were going at such a wonderful, electric pace, I didn't want to slow down to ponder. Fuck it. I'd be ecologically responsible and recycle. Time for another rescue. With the way everyone was watching and deferring to Jerry, Frenoria was taking the most active role in the party. I herded them up a flight of stairs. The door at the top is in better condition than anything down below, I said. It appears to get regular use, and even maintenance. It gets so much use, apparently, that all of you can easily tell it has no traps. Even Sir Turin can tell it is safe. Hey, objected Craig. His Sir Turin was king of nearly getting killed by traps. Renault stealthily opens the door and looks through, said Mark. It still seems to be underground, but there are signs of habitation, and not by feral monsters, I told them. So we are suddenly in a castle, not a dungeon, Jerry said to general agreement. Renault should let Frenoria scout for a bit, okay Mark? I've got the better armor. Yes, you do, Mark leered. She whacked him, which made the bikini jingle cutely. After Renault, Frenoria was the stealthiest member of the party, and had different but nearly as good scouting-type skills. It was not unusual for Jerry's character to take the point, but it was perfect for my admittedly lazy plan that I waited until they got into a routine, deliberately boring them all a little. The first time they entered a new area without Jerry laboriously detailing all her steps to be careful, I sprang the trap. Forgetting to use her forest hearing, Frenoria rounds the corner of the corridor and finds herself face to face with an entire troop of guards. They are drow, and thus, of course, move silently all the time. But Jerry didn't say anything about being careful with her chainmail clinking this time, so they heard you guys and are ready. Drow are a race of evil, dark elves. Drow are scary. Oh shit, said Jerry. I turned toward the table in general. You all hear a yelp from Frenoria as she slips around the corner. Go time, said Craig gleefully. Sir Tyrion raises his blade and charges to her aid. The others all blurted out equally in character and useful descriptions of their characters' actions. They were a good team. They were not going to succeed. As you hurtle around the corner to Frenoria's aid, you all skid to a stop like Han and Chewie on the Death Star. I laugh. There aren't any stormtroopers waiting, but in addition to the four drow warriors who are disarming and immobilizing Frenoria and taking punches and knees to their soft bits, put in Jerry hotly, and taking punches to their soft bits, I allowed. 
one in particular looks very unhappy about his reproductive future. But beyond that front four, there are another, shitload of drow guards, way more than twice your number, clambering around the guys struggling with Frenoria so they can come after the rest of you. They all looked at each other for a moment. Then the rest of them looked at Jerry. I'll remind you that these are drow, and are sure as hell not low-level. They look veteran. Their armor will be at least as good as yours, and all of them will have at least some level of magic resistance. I said carefully. Oh, here it comes. My wife said to no one in particular, sarcastic good humor coloring her voice. What she was being sarcastic about, I didn't know. Jerry looked at Tess and smiled. Fly you fools. She hissed to the whole party, in Frenoria's voice. They all looked at each other. Their instincts from years of playing RPGs was to act as a team. But they had all had realized I was trying to separate Jerry. That was really all the setup I had planned. Once she was truly captured, I was going to be lazy and let them determine how, and more importantly who, was going to rescue her. What I was afraid of was them staying too far in character and making me waste time with this foregone conclusion. Tess, of all people, said sternly. Fall back. Then she looked at me slyly. Craig nodded. Right, he said, and looked at me. Are there any females among the guards? Huh? I asked. Oh, um, sure. About a third. What the hell, I could roll with whatever he was up to for a second. One in particular is in the lead getting past the struggling ranger and her captors. A sub-lieutenant, by the look of her. She is a serious beauty, too. Her ebony black complexion is smooth as glass, but pliably soft. Her glittering sky-blue eyes are filled with gorgeous hate. Her blood-red lips are pressed together in foreboding determination. Oh, and she has legs that seem as long as the Ardoria River. Sir Tyrion stands tall. Craig said, a big grin on his face. He thrusts out his chest, arms akimbo, and smiles at the drow babe. Those two extra points of charisma from the temple had maxed Sir Tyrion out at eighteen. Along with his eighteen strength, the knight was essentially Henry Cavill's better-looking, more ripped cousin. Tyrion smiles at her, and an actual gleam sparkles off his perfect teeth. You can legit hear the little ding of a bell that accompanies the flash. I say sarcastically. Charisma attack check. I murmured, as if to myself, and rolled a die. Successful. I told Craig. She screams and swoons like she's fourteen and at a fucking Beatles concert. She falls down and trips up several of the guards on her immediate heels. It gives all of you except Jerry the time to break contact. I looked at Craig. Of course, as you turn to run, you realize that all the male drow guards have total hard-ons for their sub-lieutenant. After that stunt, every one of them is doubly eager to kill you all, starting with Sir Tyrion's dick. Time to go, said Craig hastily. You break contact easily, I said. You hide and regroup after several forks in the hallway. Curiously, you don't hear a large general hubbub or alarm. You maybe just seen the majority of the guard force. Wait a bit for them to spread out in search. While you do that, I said, turning to Jerry. She was staring at me speculatively. She was probably wondering how much I was going to embarrass her before I let one of the guys rescue her. I figured that she was also wondering what she'd do when one of them did. The four guards haul you off to a fairly large room that looks like it was once a storage room, but has apparently been repurposed as a guard post. There must be no time to take you to a proper cell. There are chairs and tables. One has what looks like a card game abandoned in progress atop it. These must be high-level guards they are gambling with silver instead of coppers, even some electrum and a single gold piece glitter on the table. They shove you into a chair, 
and the one who is carrying your weapons tosses them into a chest and locks it. I said, setting the scene to establish Fenoria's peril. Stay there, if you know what's good for you, you half-breed bitch, the leader of the drow snarls at Fenoria. He is sporting quite the shiner from your elbow. How you can see a black eye on Ebony's skin is hard to describe. I added. He turns to the guard whom you have damaged the least. Watch her, he says. The rest of us are going to see if we can't ambush any of the others who got away. They might come back for her. The three depart, leaving Frenoria with only the biggest and toughest of the drow between her and freedom. The two of them just sit there, staring at each other. I said, not sure if I needed to assert more peril. Should I make him horny for her? His main function was to make it hard for whomever came to rescue her. What does he look like? Jerry asked quickly. I shrugged. He's a big, jet-black-skinned elf. Gorgeously terrifying. He's a foot taller and a foot wider in the shoulders than Frenoria. The reason he doesn't have a mark on him is that he was too strong and too fast for her to hurt him like she did the others when they captured her. In other words, Jerry, without weapons or other equipment, Frenoria has zero chance of overpowering or escaping him. I said, not wanting to waste time with anything boring like that. Now I had to figure out how to get one of the guys an opportunity to find and free her dot or maybe one of the girls. Now, that thought intrigued me suddenly. But much as I kinda horned up at the thought, I would not try to maneuver my wife into that kind of shenanigans without her making the offer in private first. And beyond that, I had no idea about Jerry or and on that front either. I mean, I had some pretty spectacular evidence that they both liked the hell out of Dick, but beyond that. I certainly had no inklings on there. Open-mindedness that I almost shook my head at how wild my speculations were running at this feverish point of the night. Nope, it would need to be either Mark or Craig. I assumed Craig, but I'd watch what they decided. Jerry just continued talking to me. Frenoria says to the guard quietly, I don't think your leader likes me very much all just because I had a human father. Huh? I said, dragged out of my unfounded lesbian reverie. Uh, he's not too happy about your elven mum neither, the drow scoffs. Mostly, it pissed him off proper that you gave him that white eye, he laughs. Then he glares at Frenoria. Don't get no ideas that you could manage even that against me. He scares me, says Frenoria, in a small voice. Replied Jerry. She really was a scene stealer, and was not ready to give up her spotlight to her rescuers yet. But you are so strong. Will you protect me? Added Jerry in Frenoria's voice. She stood up from her chair and took a step toward me. Huh! I said again. Finally, I had my light bulb moment. This time was going to be between Jerry and me, and here I had thought my enthusiasm for how things were going had been high before Dot and my eyes flicked around involuntarily. Mark was watching us, bemused. Craig and Anne were grinning and holding hands. Tess was subtly pushing her rolling chair away from mine, tacitly giving us room. She spun around in the chair to watch Jerry's progress, as our friend walked around her toward me. Apparently I was the only one among us who had not noticed that I was the only guy not to have fun, and the only one of us, male or female, who had not had to put himself out there at all. They'd been waiting for my time, not Jerry's. Well, Jerry's too. I banished the uncontrolled flash of a grin from my face and looked dour. It's not him you should worry about. His lordship will see you soon, and he has no love at all for those with even a drop of Ferelven blood. The big guard said dourly. Will you protect me from him then? Jerry said, her voice Frenoria's, but with a genuine quaver in it. She had not looked at anyone but me since she had squeezed Mark's hand and stood up. Protect you from his nibs? I asked incredulously. For some damned reason this dark elf had a vague, and terrible, 
lower-class English accent. As if. I paused, and let my eyes give Jerry the serious, blatant going over I'd wanted to indulge in since she had slipped the bunny suit off last week. What's in it for me then? The guard asked slowly. Jerry's lip curled. I can reward you. She said silkily that I was well and truly sold already, of course. Had been from the moment I realized that everybody, perhaps especially Tess, had just been waiting for me to make some kind of move on Jerry. But the guard would not realistically be so easily moved, even by a half-elf in that bikini armor. Struth! Reward me, the guard scoffs. He looks at the chest where your stuff is locked away. That was a decent bit of treasure we took off you, and no mistake. But I already has that, don't I? I have other treasures, Jerry said huskily. Frenoria said huskily. Standing over the guard, she reached up behind her neck and undid a clasp. The chain mail cascaded musically downward, over and off her breasts. She reached behind her back and pulled the strings. The bow untied, and the whole top fell to the floor. Do you have other treasures, too? Frenoria asked the guard. Fyuk, those were nice tits. Again, not as big as the others in the room, but they were just so goddamn perky. They bounced just slightly as the top fell away. Her nipples, usually pert enough to tent up her shirts a little, even when things were normal, were right now hard and proud. They, and the half-dollar-sized circle surrounding them, were the craziest shade of dark red.tob clear, and I am being completely honest here, I liked and liked my wife's boobs better. But the great things about Jerry's offerings were that they were different, and they were right. Fucking. There, the guard's jaw worked wordlessly. Jerry tugged my chair away from the table, and turned me toward her. This actually turned us away from Craig and Anne, and I felt more than saw them both slip swiftly to their feet and come around the far end of the table to stand together behind Mark and Tess respectively, where they could see better. Jerry smiled at them when they did so. Then Frenoria straddled the guard and wrapped her arms softly around his neck as she sat on his lap. What treasure do you have for me? She repeated, sliding one hand off his shoulder and down his chest to stroke his lap between them. I gulped, then got my shit together. Mostly. Charisma attack check is a critical success. I choked out. The guard is effectively paralyzed as you caress his enormous package. That last bit earned a snort from my wife, and swatted Tess on the shoulder. No kibitzing when you aren't in the scene. She chided. I looked at Tess and smiled weakly. Hey, I'm the DM here, right? I was asking multiple questions. Her smile told me I needn't have. I knew I needn't have, of course. She'd had Mark's dick in her mouth two hours ago. But I still thought it nice to ask. Jerry tugged at my fly. The button popped open and she slid the zipper down and her hand immediately caressed my cock, which had not been this achingly eager since after Tessa's nude beach incident in St. Martin. Jerry rose up a little and I obligingly shoved down my pants, the guard's pants, past his knees. Frenoria settled back against his crotch and the cold steel of her chainmail tickled his balls. It briefly irritated me then, and still does now, actually, that there really was so little difference between me and Craig, in either size and girth. In a story as crazy as this, I really felt that the ladies deserved at least one of us being hung like a horse, right? Alas, we were all pretty close, with Mark, damn him, in the lead, and, from her vantage, certainly seemed intent enough on what was between my legs. The guard escaped his paralysis enough to place his hands aside for Noria's torso. He bent and suckled eagerly on a cherry red nipple. Those nipples, those pinnacles of those often braless confections that I had admired regularly but never before actively considered wanting, one of those nipples was in my mouth. My tongue lashed desperately at the hard bud and Jerry moaned slightly, 
the guard's hand slid over and grasped the other tit. Massaging its elastic beauty, he pinched the nipple. Franoria caressed the guard's cock almost feverishly, her breathing full of anticipation. I found myself wondering how long it would be before she would slip to her knees. I resolved to stop her when she tried. I'd sweep the table clear, put her where all my dungeon shit had just been, and lick her to orgasm instead. I wanted to distinguish myself, if I was going to top off the evening. I figured I could coax an orgasm or two out of her that would be loud enough to justify the others finding and rescuing her. After I'd shown off I in the meantime, the guard was going to enjoy the ranger's fingers on his cock and her nipple in his mouth until she decided to move on. But instead, Frenoria tugged the front triangle of her loincloth slash bikini bottom aside and slid her fingers underneath herself. The guard distinctly heard two snaps come open. She raised up just a little, and the crotch of the panties swung free behind her. The bottom came all the way open. Of course this outfit had a crotch that opened. I mean, who is going to wear a costume like this if they don't intend to get fucked while wearing it? Jerry grabbed my cock and stroked its tip across her sex. Like her husband, she was shaven smooth as silk down below and my cock tingled as she ran it along her slit her dripping wet slit. I looked at Mark intently. I would have looked at Tess, but I saw that Jerry was looking in her direction for both of us. Mark just stared back at me intensely his body almost shivering, and the front of his shorts were tented enough to host a circus. The feeling of Jerry sinking down around my cock told me all I needed to know about what she had seen in Tessa's eyes. The guard moaned as his flesh was surrounded by Frenoria's delicious embrace. It had been a long span since he had been with anyone other than his wife, and he marveled at how vaginas could feel so amazingly different. He swiftly slid his hands under the rear triangle of the half-elf's armor and grasped her tight, firm ass. Frenoria sighed in satisfaction. Treasure indeed, she said softly to the guard as she sheathed him fully within her. She rested atop him for a moment, seeming to process the feeling, both of his cock and of what she was doing, and then she started to rise and fall atop him. His hands clung to her backside, helping guide her movements. It was silent in the chamber, save for the soft, wet noises as she rose and fell. A feminine voice gasped. Wow! Almost unconsciously. A male voice let out a soft grunt of sympathetic arousal a little later. The ranger and the drow could ignore them both, as the sounds came from the rest of the table, outside the scene. Frenoria took her time, languidly moving atop the guard's shaft, hypnotizing him relentlessly. She grabbed his drow white hair and pulled his face back to her breasts, and he obligingly suckled more, her pert mound flexing in his mouth. In time, Frenoria's movements became more urgent, and the guard's own rising needs spurred him. He grabbed tighter at her buttocks and held her up above him. Then he began to thrust his hips upward and into her, pulling his head away from her tits to get better power. He quickened his pace, slapping upward into her, making her breasts jiggle fascinatingly with each impact. I was not able to process how turned on I was. Look, Jerry is hot, but I did not find, even in that moment, that I preferred her to Tess. But there were three things, we were being watched. I had thought that watching had been a cool new turn on but I was finding that being watched was even better, though possibly only because it was layered on top of what I was being watched doing. She was different. This was a new pussy, a whole new body to explore, to sense, to, um, just, fucking plunder. And we were only playing a game. D&D our favorite game for years now, just with some new rules. Frenoria placed her hands on the guard's shoulders and began to cry out softly, then louder, as he drove into her. The chair was on wheels, anachronistic, I know, and it joggled them both around as they fucked atop it. But they kept their positions, and just fucked harder. 
Frenoria was now almost shrieking with each thrust, and the guard grew winded, but his need spurred him on. In or out? I gasped quietly to Jerry. In, you know I wanted in. She gurgled back. I knew Jerry was on the pill, as were all the wives. The question of children had obviously come up now and again among three couples in their thirties. The guard groaned loudly and jammed himself upward one last time, emptying his balls into Frenoria's hot, magnificent nest. He quivered inside her, back arched almost painfully. As he felt what seemed like his entire pair of testicles explode into her depths, he felt her walls clamp down upon his spasming shaft. Her fingers dug into his shoulders and the half-breed came almost deafeningly loudly. Her hips slammed downward, pressing him back down into the soft seat of the chair. They rocked back and forth and side to side as she ground atop him, her loud cries fading into soft little moans. Jerry and I clung to each other, gasping for breath. Yeah, so, I said. I think we can say the guard will do absolutely anything for Frenoria. I heard laughter from the others, but Jerry only grabbed the sides of my head and kissed me. It was almost hot enough to reawaken my dying erection inside her. Almost. That had been one titanic orgasm. Still, it was an amazing kiss. I was starting to organize myself sufficiently to reply in kind, when Jerry cut it off. Yeah, about that newfound devotion of his. She said. Not going to happen. She clapped my temples lightly, then threw her arms wide. Frenoria kisses him one last time, because he really had been an amazing fuck, but then she snaps his neck. The effect of the way I instantly went slack and drooped my head was ruined by my laughter. Well fucking played, my friend. Jerry shivered and rose off of me at last. Not even bothered by the dangling gusset of her armor bottoms, she picked up her top from the floor and slid it back on. Then she grabbed a clean dish towel from the food table and sat down on it in her seat, matter-of-factly. Yeah, good idea. She was going to be dripping down there for a while after what I'd let fly into her. The food table. We had all been so intent on things right from the start that we had forgotten to eat anything. Almost as one, we all realized that we were famished and lunged from our seats. I was last because I'd been on such an endorphin high. I'd forgotten my pants were down and my wet dick was just hanging free. I tucked myself away, zipped up, and grabbed my share of the, as usual, delicious range of offerings. When in cracked open the lid on the brisket she'd done, the smell made me want to eat a horse. It tasted better than it smelled, even after sitting for hours. As always she outdid herself with brisket.as we dug into the food in earnest we gained on. I let Jerry know Frenoria. I let Frenoria find the drow lord's chambers, and then sneak back to gather the rest of the party. Through a combination of subterfuge, stealth, and magic, they returned to the boss's location. They killed him, but it was a near thing. High-level drow mage lords and their personal attendants are not slouches. In case you are wondering, yes, I'd have let any or all of them be killed if they had been careless or seriously unlucky. D&D isn't fun without a little real fear for your characters. I would have even killed Frenoria if it came to that. Even after what had just happened. Maybe. Probably. As the food ran out, and I was starting to tally the experience and other results for the evening's play, I saw Mark lean over and bite Jerry's earlobe. She giggled and whispered to him on the other side from them, and had her hand in Craig's lap under the table that I paused to kiss Tessa's cheek. She whispered in my ear, I hope you have more for me by the time we get home. The way I feel after what happened this evening, I whispered back, brushing my lips over her cheek again. I could fuck you senseless on this table right now. Maybe next week you can have an encore like that. Tess purred. I was, in fact, getting hard again. Tonight I'm in the mood for our bed.
Will you quit making out with the DM, Tess? Craig called, despite the fact that Anne's hand was still in his lap. I want to see if we got enough experience to get Sir Turin to level 12. With your new 18 charisma, are you going to have Turin try to change to a paladin if he levels up? Jerry asked him. Craig mused theatrically. A paladin of the love goddess Greya. He pondered, rubbing his chin, and covered her face in both hands, which unfortunately for Craig meant no more less than subtle handjob. I told them their experience points awards and Craig slammed his fist on the table. Damn! I'm a little over two hundred short. He actually looked at me in appeal like a little kid. Hoping I'd find some excuse to hand out another two hundred. I'm not that kind of pushover DM. No way, beggar! Next week, I said. Next week. We all agreed. As they all headed to our door, Mark stopped. Everyone else did, instinctively. This is only a game, and it's only in the game, am I right? Exactly. And said confidently. As we all agreed, I sensed a general sense of relief that someone had said it. Continue in the next part.